There are only three answers to a prayer. Yes. Not yet. And I have something else in mind for you. Man's great challenge is trusting not yet or something else and avoiding the foolish notion of hope. Wishing to nothing that your unanswered prayers grant Hope is the surrender of authority to your fate and trusting it to the whims of the wind. My family does not hope. We fight for what we believe until we have it. And we are destroyed by the pursuit. Clubhouse's coverage of 1923, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the mid-season finale of 1923, War in the Turquoise Tide. Tonight's episode, <laughs> surprise, surprise, was written by Taylor Sheridan and once again directed by Ben Richardson. Those guys are super familiar to us. <laughs> Yes. And just a community note, please join us on Facebook on the Yellowstone 1923, 1883, and Four Sixes Discussion and News Group to discuss 1923 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. There's so many. Yeah, and we just uh, we actually just published Stefan Sheila's mid-season finale coverage of episode eight of season five of Yellowstone. So yeah. a lot of concurrent content going on over there. Concurrent content? That's a that's a tongue twister. The old CC, the old current content <laughs> uh just a reminder that uh if you've not watched the episode you should pause this now unless you don't care about being spoiled because y'all we are gonna be talking about it this is not a recap show we assume you have watched the episode why would you be listening to a podcast and being spoiled if you hadn't watched it fun yeah. fact i never watched one episode of john from cincinnati that very short-lived show on hbo but okay. i read recaps of every episode never watched one but i knew at the time everything that was going on in the show please soap opera digest wouldn't even exist if there wasn't a whole contingent of people who don't actually watch those soap operas but have kept up with all their favorite characters for decades just by reading the little recaps i used to i used to read my grandmother's soap opera digest the second she was done with it I was like, shh, 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 shh. what's going on with Patch and Kayla? Patch and Kayla. <laughs> You're like, for school. Plastic <laughs> princess. What? That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Wait, Marlene is actually a twin. Uh... <laughs> so crazy. He was strong black all, all along. I love all that business. All the fact that you know all of it cracks me Anna up. Devane and Robert Scorpio? <gasps> Robert Scorpio. Oh my God, that's so funny. Alan Quartermain. GH and <laughs> Duel. Those are my shows. You're totally into it. Yeah, I can. I, man, I remember tuning into Days of Our Lives like 
10 yes. years after I hadn't seen an episode. And I swear to God, it was like I had not missed one. They were still doing like oh, the same. The, the, the actors all still look the same. It's miraculous. No one ages. But all of a sudden, they just go from like mothers to they go from kids to mothers to grandmothers in the course of a couple of seasons. But no one looks different. Just all of a sudden, they cast older kids. I'm pretty sure I had some kind of fake wedding in my brain to Sammy Brady like seven times through my childhood. So, Whoa, you were a Sammy Brady lover? I love Sammy. Was, oh my god. <laughs> she was the bee's knees to call back to episode three of uh, 1923. I, I Listen, this episode is called War and the Turquoise Tide. The Turquoise Tide refers to the turquoise water of Zanzibar. Man, I have never wanted to go on vacation more than after watching this episode. That place looks like paradise. Just the yeah. two of them on those those uh, white beaches, white sand beaches with that, that turquoise water. There were Blue Lagoon in it, man. That's all I kept thinking. Remember Blue Lagoon? Do you remember that movie? I, I, I do. I do. With yeah. Mila, Mila Jonovich. No, name? even go back further. That's like Blue Lagoon too, like Brooke Shields. Oh, 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 yes, yes, yes. Way like two, two young Brooke Shields. Yeah, like yes, young yes, Shields, like two yeah. young Brooke Shields. Uh, yeah, no, it was fantastic. I definitely spent a lot of time wondering why were they even wearing clothes at at a certain point. I mean, especially <laughs> after they took them all off, they should have just stayed that way. Right. It does give me the opportunity to to play this, which I have been singing in my head literally since I saw this screener. <laughs> okay. So we're gonna have a little musical interlude, which will for sure get DCM made when this episode hits YouTube, but in the meantime, I hope you guys all enjoy it. Billy Joel trying to tell us. Billy Joel loved the name uh, Zanzibar, and uh, he was getting ready to do 52nd Street, which is going to be a little bit of a jazzy album. Uh, this is like 1978, I think it comes out. He hears the name Zanzibar, and he's like, that feels tropical, it feels jazzy, so he, he wants to write a song with that as the title. His producer actually hears the song he does, and he's like, this feels more like Zanzibar should be the name of like a like a like a sports bar. So that first verse is about Muhammad Ali. Then mm. there's a verse coming up is about like Pete Rose. It's kind of like the the overall meaning of the of the song ends up being kind of like one last chance at glory. Oh. Billy the Joel the singer in the song as well as the sports figures he's talking about. But it started as supposed to have been an ode to the beautiful island of Zanzibar in the Indian Ocean off the coast of East Africa. Wow. Look at you tying it all together. I'm a big Billy fan and listen, uh, but since my kid bailed on wanting to do a Billy Joel podcast with me, I may never get to have another Billy Joel song <laughs> on 
Um, <laughs> unless I cover, unless we cover Oliver and Company, um, this, <laughs> Elizabeth would love that. That may be the only chance I get to play Billy Joel on the podcast. So I was, I was not going to miss the opportunity. To the three of you that are still listening and have not turned this off, we appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, for all of those awesome five star reviews who say there's no extra banter, they get right into the show. <laughs> Hey, listen. That song, I, I that's a that's a five minute song. I clipped uh, about he a minute. Just did a minute. That I was clipped excellent. about a minute twenty of it, and I only played about fifty seconds of it. So I showed restraint. I'm very proud of you. Hey, do you know what was weird about this episode, Mike? No, what was weird about this episode? No cold open again. Again, I find that very jarring. I don't know about you, but it really sets me on edge right away. I agree. It makes me feel like like it's just not a part of our normal entree to that episode, right? It feels weird. It feels like I'm jumping right into like someone's bedroom instead of like coming into the foyer first. Feels weird. It immediately makes makes like the hair stand up like on the back of my neck. Like something bad is going to happen because without being eased into it or without being given that direction of this is this is the thrust you need to be looking for. I feel like what's going to happen? What are you going to right. throw at me? I'm like, freaking I, out. I'm, I'm immediately, freaking out. I'm immediately leaning forward in a bad way. Like I'm very like much like, you know, red alert, red alert. See, and I, I'm, I'm like pulling my house coat tighter around me, like my little cardigan, like what's going to happen? Let's give ourselves all the encomiums. We had a couple of good calls. Encomiums. I love encomiums. <laughs> that Gilmore girls uh, rubbing <laughs> off on me. Uh, uh, we, in episode three, we predicted that Jacob would live at least for a while. And here he yep. is. Jacob lives. Captain Linger. Not looking great. I mean, he has never looked more old than when Jack walks by. He's headed outside and he stops and looks at the room and and Jacob is in bed snoring. Uh, He just looks so old and so frail and so feeble. But he's still breathing, though, you know, and and that's all that Kara wants, right? She has forbidden him to die. He is forbidden Uh, to die. How Gilmore Girls is that? Uh, Very. I forbid you to die. If any of them had healthy uh, relationships, yes, that is very, (laughs) very much uh, what they would do. And we also guessed the time jump. Uh, We had predicted that in between episodes four and five, there was going to be a significant time jump. And they started paving the way with a three-month time jump at the end of this episode. So I feel like we had a good handle on kind of what was going to go on here. Hey, speaking of timing that we're always trying to kind of understand the timeline of what's going on in the Dutton family, we did have that zoom in on Margaret Dutton's headstone. Mm. And it said that she was 54 when she died. Now, if you're just coming in with these characters in 1923, you don't have much of a connection to Margaret Dutton. She was played by Faith Hill in 1883. We had really done quite a bit of work to try to figure out their ages, each of the characters' ages. And there was there was some inconsistencies throughout the episodes that created a lot of conflict and definitely on the Facebook page and if you go out onto Reddit and those types of things there's a lot of conversation about like how old are these characters sometimes it seems to matter like it's like this is very important I'm 18 now and then there's other times when it was like wait I thought she was 17 but when it comes to old Margaret Dutton you and I had figured out she was roughly between like would you say like 35 39 somewhere in that range She says to her daughter during 1883, I was pregnant with you when I was 18. I was a nurse in the Civil War. 
So that puts her 18 between the years of 1861 and 1865. Now, Elsa turned 17 during the course of the show, or 18, depending on which episode. They they were inconsistent with that. Within 1883, they make a big deal about her turning 17, and then like three episodes later, she says, I'm 18, or they say, you're 18, whatever. But the fact remains, she has to be between the ages of 36 and 40. If you work out the math, she has to be between 36 and 40 during the car during at in 1883, based on the story she tells. Even if you shade a year up or down, there's no way the, the her being 54 when she dies in 1894 means that she is 43 during 1883. That just doesn't work. That's way outside the scope of, of ages based on the storyline given in 1883. Does it matter? Probably not. But man, I like consistency. And if you're going to pay attention to some details, let's pay attention to all the details. Because why else give that nice shiny shot of the headstone? Right. Why even put the dates on there if you don't want us to pay attention, pay attention to their ages? You know, don't don't do that. Just say like, here lies Margaret Dutton, great wife, awesome mom. You don't have to put aged 54 years. You're just right. throwing gum to the works. We would rather they would stop doing that. But even if they haven't still Margaret Dutton, RIP man, I still think they did her dirty. While we're still doing like talking about general things before we start getting into episode themes and specifics of uh, different characters. There was a fun little mention of East Camp in this episode when the herd gets stolen. Zane comes running in or comes riding in to the ranch and he tells uh, Kara that the herd has been stolen out of east camp and i heard that my ears pricked up because in all the years of watching yellowstone and and 1923 and 1883 they've never really said the phrase east camp before until the mid-season finale of yellowstone that just happened last week john kevin costner john dutton offers a rundown abandoned house at in east camp near the reservation to his son and daughter-in-law, Monica, to his son, Casey, and if they're going to stay on and willing to help the ranch because he's the governor and he has to be off in Helena and everyone else is moving the herd down south, but someone has to stay and be in charge of the place. So he offers a uh, a rundown, long-abandoned house in East Camp, which he makes a point of saying is near the reservation to Casey and Monica, who is a Native American, who is a member of the uh, Broken Rock Reservation, uh, which is the res- name of the reservation in modern Yellowstone. So I thought it was funny that... That you have that, and then a week later, you have East Camp now being mentioned a hundred years before that in 1923. So it makes me wonder, are we going to get to see East Camp, the house? Is this where maybe Spencer and Alex are going to live? Maybe they don't want to live in the big house with all the other Dutton family members. Maybe we're mm. going to get to see East Camp. So I thought that was like, I thought, see, that's the kind of detail I love. Why are you fucking with 54 years, which doesn't work? <laughs> she couldn't have been more than 51 when she died. Nice. <laughs> but but you you take the time to mention East Camp, so there you go. I have some question marks about the train station when we're talking about what's going to happen next in all 1923 and uh, how the train station may come to be. I'm so curious. And that the concept of the train station has certainly been a topic over in Yellowstone throughout, but is a big spotlight on that topic right now. Yes, I, I think a lot of Yellowstone fans that are also watching 1923 are waiting for the first mention of the train station, especially because in, again, episode 508, the train station became a hot button topic. And John, Kevin Costner, John Dutton makes a specific point of saying it's where our family has buried its secrets for a 100 years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
We know canonically it's 140 years, but he specifically says 100 years, which would make it during, sometime during 1923 that the train station comes into being or is I'm first used. Smelling the creation of the train station. I'm smelling me a sheep herder in the bottom of the, in the, <laughs> in the over the border in Wyoming. You think so, so? And well, Wyoming also mentioned several times in this episode. It was the place where the cattle were going to be put it on uh, trains and shipped away. According to Zane, that was their thought. And it's also where Jacob allegedly has gone to hunt down the herd thieves. Wyoming, which is also the location of the train station, it's a dead zone right over the border in the state of Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming comes into play in all of these shows. So, uh, yeah, very interested to see that. Back in episode two, when they finally reach where they're going to leave the herd, Jacob says, leave three cowboys and everyone else head back to the ranch. And I said, I could play it back to you. I said on this episode, three cowboys is not enough to watch the fucking herd all summer. <laughs> and you know what three cowboys are all dead now? The three that they left to watch the fucking herd. Oh, man. Three was just not enough. Three was not. Three was not enough. Three's company, but it's not enough. No, you needed Mr. Roper and you needed uh, uh, the pervy friend and all that stuff. So that's his name's Larry. 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 What about Mr. Furley? Mr. Furley's not a help to anyone. I think we all know that. (laughs) He needed all of them. Mr. Frilly would have been totally, he would have smelt those cattle thieves from a mile away. He would have come in all dawn Nazi on us. It would have been fantastic. Big old bulging eyes. They're sheepmen! They're sheepmen in our field! Exactly. See, Don Nazi is exactly who we needed here. Uh, Just another little dialogue thing I noticed in this episode. Uh, When Banner comes out of the bush uh, with his henchmen, and they're asking him with all these questions, he's like, let me think! And I thought that was that was interesting. But literally the next scene, we're back at the ranch and Jack is peppering and Zane are peppering Kara about we have to go do this. We have to go that. And she says essentially the same thing. She says, you have to let me think. I think I've earned a moment. I need to think. Why am I even bringing that up? Because I think this escalated even beyond both of their. Well, I I think this escalated beyond what Banner thought it was going to be. I think he thought they were going to get all of them. But now there are question marks left. And Kara obviously is playing defense. So I think both of them need a moment to literally think about what happens next because neither was prepared for where they are right now. So are you you a thinker like this? Are you somebody who like when you have an issue, do you say, you know what, I need to stop what I'm doing and actually do need to like really just think, just think through my options? I am pretty good at making snap decisions if I need to. I always appreciate having the moment to think, for sure. I think I probably would have made a snap decision if I was Kara in that uh, in that position. I don't know that I would have stopped. I won't know that I would have said, you know, no, I need a moment. I think I would have just said something. Um, but sometimes you regret that because sometimes then when you do get a moment to think, you realize, oh, you know, you missed the X, Y, or Z and you should have stopped to think about it some more. So. Especially, I think, in, in this day and age when these decisions are so survival based you know these this is not just like oh if i make a bad decision you know then i'll be like short five bucks or something like that i mean this is like your entire livelihood you know and like if she does send a bunch of cowboys to go get those cows back then she's leaving them you know sitting there like sitting ducks waiting for someone to come attack them so I'm proud of her for taking a moment and like calling it, like saying I need a moment and for that not to be looked at like weakness, but just to be like, give me a second, you know, let me make it, let me make the best choice possible and going to talk it through a little bit with, with Jacob and, and just mulling on it. I'm always a fan of that. 
For sure. Uh, one of my two episode themes for this episode was the resilience and badassery of Cara Dutton. I think yeah. this is very much, other than the Spencer stuff that happens at the end where he, in you know, part of his healing process with Alex and reading the letters, I think this episode was Cara's episode. This was where you got to see her move to the forefront and really take over the family for all intents and purposes. And Jacob even says, and, and when she goes up to talk with him or, or ask for guidance, I actually don't think he's going, I don't think she thinks she's going to get a response out of him. I think she is more philosophically asking for guidance. Or it was like, almost like prayerful. Like she was like going to his bedside and then sort of like being like, give, give me the strength and the wisdom, you know, kind of thing. Right. And it, and it manifested in itself in him waking up and telling her what she needed to hear, what she already knew, I think, but needed to hear from him. You be the leader. You are the leader. Go be the leader. Have his blessing. You know, I took that as like complete and total, you know, baton passing blessing. Like, you know, I trust you. Yes, 100%. And I think it's very consistent with their relationship. I mean, that's why these small moments that we have gotten between these two in episodes one, two, and three are so important. When you look backwards, why do you believe that Kara can do this and can do this with Jacob's blessing? Because you've seen their relationship in these smaller moments. You've seen the mutual respect that they've had for each other. Think back to the greed conversation and the leg shaving conversation and, and all of that. You know, 44 years of marriage, you know, you've never asked me a question you didn't know the answer to. And he always wants to hear what she has to say. I don't think he's saying, if he didn't believe it, I don't think he would have said it. Because in the same breath, he also says, bring me Zane. And then he barks out orders to Zane about what to do with the cattle. So they're kind of dividing and conquering what needs to happen. He's taking care of the banking side while she holds together the family and organizes the defense while they wait for Spencer to get home. And puts on the front, right? Puts on the, the like, you know, everything's fine. Jacob's gone out of town, dealing with this cow thief stuff. She's got to be the face now. I appreciated the writing in this to remind all of the, the watchers why this is such a big deal for Kara. What with talking about how Banner was explaining, like, the bank's not going to give a woman any kind of lease. They're not going to acknowledge you as, you know, the owner of any of this. All of that was really important to remind our audience that this is not just like, oh, we're afraid someone's going to run up on the land the bank themselves can come and take the land because there's no quote men to like deal with this um and actually own it properly so it was good to remind the audience of all of that and and again because the, there's an overarching conversation about women and what they can do and how far they can get and how how much can they be the leader if by within like the institutions they really can't own anything or be in charge of anything they're not recognized by anyone else right and jacob realizes that too i mean the reason that he's he's spending these precious breaths to talk to zane about sell the wean the wean the calves sell the mamas put the bulls on the heifers when once they reach 700 pounds and then sell them and that takes care of the bank he these are precious moments for him to be talking about ranch business but he says the the important part there is that'll take care of the bank he knows that this ruse is only going to last for so long Kara can say he's away and speak with his authority for only so long they need to have money they need to be able to keep the bank in line and keep the bank from coming and checking out what's going on so those payments need to keep going you know keep need to keep finding their way to the bank the two of them are are doing a great job of dining conquer here i think another good piece of writing is in the beginning of the episode where Zane and Kara are having a conversation and not the hope part of it, which we're going to get to in a second, but the beginning part where she tells him, I'm going to go 
to the Livestock Commission meeting in Jacob's stead, and I'll say he's off in Wyoming. Zane hears that from her, and then when talking to Jacob later, Zane hears the same thing from Jacob, and they hadn't discussed it. The two of them had the same idea. That's important because Zane, not Jack, is the one who's next in charge after after Kara. Zane is the one in the pecking order who is going to be charged with keeping the ranch running after Kara and after Jacob. Trust-wise, it was good for Zane to hear both of them having the same idea. And yeah. and and it, not that he doesn't respect Kara, but now he gets to see Kara as the boss more than just the wife of the boss, which is maybe what he had seen more from her up until now because she hadn't need she hasn't needed to step into that role and now she does. And again, is doing so, you know, with Jacob's complete blessing, which is not, you know, there's a whole, you know, portion of that where you want to think she could have just like kept the door closed and not let Zane go in and all kinds of stuff, you know, very could have just been like, yeah, yeah, he's alive. He's he's good. This is what he told me to do. You know, like that would have been a whole other storyline that you could have done it that way. Where like he's never answering her, but she's just coming out saying this is what Jacob said. And only I go in there like that type of thing. And that that could have gone that way. So I'm glad that we're having a couple moments with Jacob here giving what he really wants to happen. And another thing with the Zane aspect, too, Zane, the, the very under under the radar character so far. But I think I hope people pay attention, realize in this episode this He's a key member of the staff. He's the rip. If you watch regular, if you watch modern Yellowstone, this is the ranch manager. This is the guy who is in charge of the day to day of the ranch in 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 a lot of ways. So he has an important part here. And think he's telling Kara at the beginning of this episode, I have to go get the sheriff. I have to go get the posse. She's like, no, Jacob said no. And we're saying no, and we're going to pretend like this didn't happen. So Zane was going to go against Jacob's wishes. It's only after hearing Kara reiterate Jacob's wishes that he finally stands down and does what she asks to go mail off the Spencer letter and not go get the sheriff involved. He's in Bozeman. He could have easily swung by the sheriff's office after he goes to the post office, but he doesn't because he respects Kara here and they're demonstrating that he's going to, you know, respect her authority. My issue was more with Jack when she comes out and gives the pronouncement after she talks to Jacob and she says, we're going to let the cattle go. It's not worth another life. We're going to wait for Spencer. Zane, he wants to see you. Jack's reaction is, that's half of our herd. You have no right to make that decision. Who are you talking to? She doesn't have the right to make that decision. She just smacked your future mother-in-law. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. have the, doesn't have the authority or to right to make that decision. She was she's only you're only alive because she saved you from starving to death. You know, thirty years ago. De- definitely, definitely bold, and 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 it gives you a little glimpse into what he thinks about women and authority. I mean, it's definitely you know not equal in his eyes. You know, so it gives me a little a little worry for old Elizabeth that hopefully Jack is actually a good partner in some way if they actually make it. If nothing else, I if beyond his treatment of women, I also think it shows his immaturity, right? He's not acting with a rational head. Who are you going to go fight? You don't have a working arm. You have no you have virtually no cowboys left. Where What are you going to do other than get yourself killed? And the bigger thing, bring attention to the ranch and bring attention to the desperation that is going on at the ranch, which we don't want anyone to know. We want everyone to think everything's going just fine here. Right. And so and so contrast Zane to Jack. Zane also has that reaction of we need to go get the sheriff. We need to get people involved here, but cools his heels when the elder statesman says what to do. 
Jack, knowing the same situation, he's got the same facts at hand as Zane, is whining and complaining and saying, no, I should do this. No, because he's <laughs> acting immaturely and he doesn't have right. that experience yet. And, right. he, and he maybe doesn't have that respect for that decision. You know, he, he's in the kitchen at the end of episode three when Jacob with his, you know, four of his last ten breaths is telling Zane, no sheriff, no posse. You know, you you can't let this get out because the thieves are going to come, the bank's going to come, the miners are going to come. And we hear about all of those people in this episode, the banks, the miners, and the thieves. Jack's in that kitchen, so he's also not only ignoring Kara here, he's also ignoring his uncle's wishes. Important, we don't want Jack leading the ranch right now. That's not going to end well. Exactly. Let, let's stay with the resilience and badassery of Karen Dutton, because I think it's a good way to go through the episode because you see these moments of strength with her and her leadership ability. Think of that first image, right? She, it's the morning after all this happened. We know we learned Jacob has made it through the night, but the kitchen is still covered in blood, like dripping pools of blood. And she's there with her mop. And before she does it, she goes out of the house. She goes and screams in the field. She vents her grief out in the open. Right. She doesn't do it where anyone can hear her. She doesn't take a chance of waking up the doctors and the nurses who are passed out. She doesn't want to wake up Jacob or or Elizabeth or Jack. She goes and she does her business out in the yard. She sucks it up. She comes in and she gets to work to scrubbing like that's her job right now. She needs to start cleaning up. But she gives herself a moment to collect herself. She does it again later on when she goes out to the field uh, after they get through Mrs. Strafford and the the new calamity of the herd. She goes out and uh, after Jacob has spoken to her and that's where she has her conversation about not wanting to believe in hope, but she does it out in the field. Like she doesn't, she doesn't let people see her vulnerable, but she allows herself to be vulnerable. I think that's a good thing a leader has to do. It resonated so much with me for listeners who haven't followed any of our other podcasts. Um, I have three kids with special needs and, and there's definitely times when, you know, you need that coping mechanism. You need, you need a moment to go scream. And it was making me chuckle in this kind of like dark humor kind of way, because the first time we see her do it, she manages to go and privately scream, right? And she manages to actually have that moment and go back. But what made me kind of smile and say, this is a reality, is the second time she tries to use it as her coping mechanism, she gets interrupted by Zane. He like comes out there. And I was laughing to myself because it feels like, it feels like the, the, the parent, you know, tips where they're like, well, just, you know, go take a long shower or go to the bathroom and like kind of like regroup or whatever. And then you like to show the picture next week and the children are like hanging on the shower door and they're like <laughs> knocking on the door or the dog's like scratching it. It's like even in 1923, this woman is trying to have a coping mechanism and it only really works once. And then the second time she's already found out, they already found her hiding spot. They're already bothering her. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, me- it, yeah, it's like one of the largest states in the union with like a hundred people in it and she still can't find a fucking, she can't find one damn place to scream in private right, right, right? Right. Like without being bothered. And like, almighty, <laughs> even Emma can't, can't bury her dead husband in peace without a posse of cowboys oh, seeing her. Wait, can we have a moment about that? Because I was having such flashbacks to 1883. I, first of all, I, I want to take Emma for a second because we didn't talk about her in the last episode, barely at all. And there was a moment when she was kind of staggering through the field um, after she saw John was dead. Not just dead, very dead. Yeah, very eye, dead. A weird eye, eye blown out, yeah, super dead. Yes, Real bad. I really thought that that felt very like suicidal thoughts kind of moment. I like thought Claire. she might shoot herself, right? Or somehow just put herself so far out in the open that she was going to get shot. That scene in this episode where she like pulls up and she starts digging the hole and the, and when the other cowboy said, we all know what she's doing. I really, because they, 
planned this for us in 1883, I really thought she was digging her own hole to kill herself. And this is what they were seeing and that they were swooping down in there to be like, hey, 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 we're here, you know, no need for that kind of stuff. So when they actually started like helping dig the hole and I was like, ah, they're digging it for John. I was like, thank goodness, because really my mindset for Emma is pure suicidal thoughts. I don't see this woman having any other ending except for just losing it because she was already so frayed, you know, just when they were talking about like he, she was just hoping that Jack would settle down and hoping that Elizabeth was going to be the thing that, that kept him under control. She just was so frayed at that point that then for, for John to die and her to deal with that, everything I see, I just see like dead woman walking right now, you know, like she just doesn't feel like she's going to make it through this. But that scene tricked me. I don't know how you thought, I don't know if you knew right away that she was just digging for her own husband but i really thought she was gonna shoot herself okay so two things so one i i knew she was digging the hole for john right because she took the wagon with his body in it so I, I knew that's what she was going to do but here here's the thing you're, you're making an allusion in 1883 to claire dutton or claire last name we all assume dutton who is either james or margaret's sister unclear um but, but that other lady the one who's donald don oliveri who's playing sarah atwood in modern yellowstone she was on 1883 her daughter mary abel remember she buries mary abel and then kills herself so she buried her loved one her daughter the last member of her family and then killed herself so i don't think we're out of suicide watch yet for emma and i also well, I believe either. i agree with you i think that is her end game especially when you hear the story at the end of the episode and we can insert it here this is when alex is reading the letters alas the baby did not survive emma was shattered but john stayed by her side all day until she dared to face the sun again she's too old to try again god wished her only one what a special one he is hearing her and john having lost a baby the fact that they ended up with only having jack not by choice but by nature not cooperating with them and and listening to the fact that john had to be there to kind of help keep her together and and make it and help her get along until she could face at sunrise again this is a woman who has been through the ringer and we don't even know the half of it yet I, I don't think she's going to continue on. And again, this is not her story. This wasn't John's story. It's certainly not Emma's story. So I think she's burying her husband. But I think before long, we'll probably be burying her in that cemetery also. You know what? It's so it's so weird. Just when you just said that, it actually like hit my heart that that's little John. That's little John. The little speech impediment, little John, you know, from yeah. from 1883, his little his little voice his little like going hunting with dad and all this stuff like we actually just saw a little five-year-old John die, you know, and like see his wife like actually digging the hole. Like sometimes when you pull the camera back and remember who these characters are, that actually like hits my heart pretty hard. Yeah, John hit me actually harder specifically because we got to see him literally as a little boy. And we yes, got to spend that time so with him. Cute he was and so endearing. And him and Tim McGraw just had such a, an amazing little rapport. And remember them going hunting? He was like, he was like, am I being quiet? And he's like, you were. Remember all that? Like, it was so cute. And now to see the, as the grown man, you know, him dying in this ambush, it's just like, oh my God, no, no it's not fair. You make it through so much, survive through so much to die for nothing. Same. 
Put your finger beside the trigger, not on it, till I tell you. Is he doing a kick? It's gonna kick. It's gonna hurt. But you don't remember the kick in a week. All you remember is the kill. All right, look to there. Put the crosshairs right behind his shoulder. Yes, sir. Is it there? Yes, sir. Put your finger on the trigger. Pull slowly. You got him. I got him. You got him, son. Now, come here. Playing a little clip of oh, little, little John. John. I know, like that. Is I it going to hurt? It's going to hurt, but you won't remember it. You won't remember the kick. You know what? I think that that is the brilliance of this this whole Taylor Sheridan universe. We can get attached to these characters at different phases in their life, and you do have that moment where it does kind of kick you in the side, and you're like, "Oh my god, that's that same little baby." Oh my god, you know, because you miss the in between. We just saw him as a baby, and then we got to see him as like what was like a ten or fifteen year old boy, and then we now we see him as an adult. But that's it, and it's like that's his whole life for us you know that was his whole life and you said this wasn't his story and and in a way you're totally right but in another way his story was running in the background you know like this whole time and there's going to be so many characters yeah there's so many characters that are like that that i love when you get these little moments like when you hear jacob and and kara being married 44 years like in my mind i can figure out those 44 years you know because i can kind of start piecing all of these characters whose stories are running in the background of our other characters. Very, very well written and and definitely pulls me in. I mean, if I care about the fact that this man died, when if you've only watched 1923, he had what, like 10 lines? Yeah, I mean, he was in a lot of scenes, but didn't have a lot. He was there. He was always yeah. flanking Harrison, but he didn't He didn't have a lot going on. Um, I mean, I swear it took me a, a, way too long to realize Emma and him were married. Way too long. It, it should have been way snappier, but I didn't connect them right away. And there's just a lot there that I think it, it makes me excited about these prequels because there's, you know, sometimes it feels like they go too far with wanting to like tell the stories, you know, like the Star Wars universe is just spun off and spun off and spun off. But there's something about this story that is staying comfortably small, that every death still does matter. That's exciting that they can do it that way and still keep such a huge story. I don't know about you. I'm getting real trauma seeing the Dutton, the Dutton graveyard, the Dutton cemetery. Oh, We've seen it so much yeah. this season in, in mainline Yellowstone. And now we've seen it a bunch in 1923 and we're getting those glimpses of Elsa's headstone and James's headstone and Margaret's headstone. And now we got a hole now for, for John. And these are characters that we knew. We knew. We know James Dutton well. We know Elsa Dutton well. We know Margaret Dutton well. And then we see their headstones and it's very jarring because you spent a whole season with these characters and it was they, they were written well. So we know them well. There's something about that that I agree that it's jarring, but there's also something about it that is kind of comforting for me because the story has stayed small enough that we do know those well, you're feeling something. well we do know them and so it's like where they're still there they're still in the story you know they're still a part of it and they're and they're still helping kind of create yellowstone in their own way i think you just gave a defense of the elsa a, a voiceover though <laughs> shut up you i think that but that's the 
reasoning. The re- is she still part of the story? She's, she's still, still there watching over the family, and that's why we hear from her. Is yes. because she is she is the voice of this family, and in the same way, those headstones speak to you. Elsa literally speaks to you in in this ethereal way. Now, I, I want to stay with Emma and John though, because we do learn that they lost a baby in those letters in that fantastic scene at the end of the episode. But we don't see a headstone for that baby. There's no headstone for the baby in the cemetery that we could see, and they seem to be going in kind of a straight line so you think it would be the one that was right next to margaret but we don't see one but we know in the future there are some names that we've never come across or heard there's a patience there is a ned there is a chance dutton these are all duttons that we've heard and i'm curious if that baby if they bothered to give if they i'm sure they did give it a name i'm sure they had a name if it's one of those that eventually does get a headstone right uh anyway so let, let's get back to the resiliency and badassery of cara dutton that cleaning up all that blood Mike. Oh, oh my god so much well she did a fantastic job she so seen that that table is ready to eat off of after she scrubbed her for a while <laughs> i mean i don't know that i would want to have dinner there for a while but <laughs> when she says to, to zane to like reach in her pocket because she doesn't want to get blood on the letter oh my little heart i've I, every bit of my mom heart was just like I, on both sides like i could totally see the side of it being like no you don't need to be the one to clean it up you know like let some uh, other people clean it up but then as like the mom and the wife and the everything of all of this situation there's something about it that's like no only i can do it mm-hmm. i only this i can do it blood. enough this is yes. my son's blood my responsibility uh, right. she doesn't even acknowledge it he says uh, the boys and i'll handle that ma'am and she doesn't her response is the letter in my pocket she doesn't say no no i've got it it's so ridiculous it's yeah. her house. It's not Zane's house. It's as important as Zane is the family. It's I'm her like responsibility. She's trust the cowboys to be the the right. ones. Right, please, yes. Let's fast forward a little bit ahead, though, because another big badass moment is once Mrs. Strafford arrives, and mm-hmm. uh, we get start up in the room. Right, uh, Elizabeth makes the choice. She chooses Jack, and she chooses this life. Mrs. Strafford was an interesting character because you could tell right away she is that Eastern influence in Elizabeth's life. We wondered why would a rancher out here, Mr. Strafford, have sent his daughter back east for schooling and not raised her in the ranching lifestyle? Well, we met that reason tonight. Mrs. Strafford is that reason. She calls this a godless place. There's no reason left here. When they killed your father, they killed your wedding. This woman does not want to be in Montana and never has wanted to be in Montana. Now, do you blame her? I mean, think about it. I mean, not only has their way of life been essentially erased with his death, but she's lost her husband now. Like, I mean, doesn't it seem unnecessarily difficult compared to just being able to go live in a home with electricity and cars and whatnot back east? Doesn't it seem like, why would we go through this struggle? Sure. But the way she comes off, though, it's almost like she always waited for this to happen. Mm. Or always knew, right? Like, she's a very clear... Dutton, like this was all, this was all a nightmare. It was, it was never her dream. Right, right. This has never been a dream. This was a nightmare. This was, this was, I got hoodwinked into this life. And now Mm -hmm. I, now I see a way out. I give her credit. She does say to Jack, and this surprised me. Because I think at most TV shows, it would have been Elizabeth, get, I'm sending a car for you, you get in the car and go. She does turn to Jack and say, if you still wish to marry my daughter, back your things. She's not calling off the wedding necessarily. She's saying, but you have to come with us, though. You have to abandon this lifestyle. That was interesting. That's a twist that you wouldn't normally hear in most TV shows. It would be, I'm taking my daughter and fuck you, Duttons. She actually right. gives Jack a choice. Jack is not obviously going to take it, but she does but say it to cool. him. I agree with you. That was cool that she did that. And then also, I didn't expect elizabeth to make that decision so quickly did you 
I thought I thought they were going to discuss a little between her and Jack. I, I think I think once you have them running and jumping off of carriages and and falling and running in the fields to each other, she may regret that decision when she's feeling a little bit better. But I think the adrenaline of everything that came right before what happened out in that field, together with she's convalescing in the Dutton house. It's Kara that's what cleaning her wounds. It's Jack that's sitting by her bed, not her mom. I, I I think it makes sense, and and probably there's a part of her that feels like it's a way of honoring her father too. She knows her father's dead. This is what he would want. So I think there's a lot of factors why she would make that decision so quickly. Now again, she may regret that decision, or she may definitely have a scene in a couple of episodes, uh, especially with a year time jump. Been like, I should have gone with my mother. Well, I kind of thought it, it was vibing of the scene when Spencer says, "And this is my fiance." If she's still my fiance, and Alex says, "We'll talk about it in the car." We'll talk there about was it sort in of the car. there was sort of that moment of like <laughs> that. I kind of expected Elizabeth to echo that same kind of thing. Like, like, okay, we have a moment to discuss this. Yeah, Elizabeth isn't a grown woman this. though. Elizabeth is a little kid though, like Jack. Is. Okay. Alex Alex is a grown woman who can say something in the moment and say, we'll talk about it in the car. Elizabeth is not a grown woman. She's not going to have that reaction. She's a child just like Jack is a child. And she, they're having child reactions. It's all it's all knee jerk. No, no thinking through. I, I think I think as much as she has thought through it is from Kara's words of you have to choose more than the boy. You have to choose this life. And she says on that porch. I choose this life. I choose him. <laughs> and so, and so she does. And so she's sticking with that. I think more out of knee jerk than anything else. I don't think Jack and Elizabeth are anywhere near the maturity level of a Spencer and an Alex. No, do you think that you would have had a, len- a lengthier conversation? Because I definitely think I would have. If, if I'm in a situation where I'm bleeding and we're talking about getting me to a hospital and then my dad is dead, this life does seem needlessly hard. Uh, when I could go back to the city where we could be drinking bees knees and dancing at the speakeasy, I, you know, I'm I'm going to say even not young Caroline would have had a moment to be like, all right, let's talk about let's just talk about the pros and cons here. And you know what? We probably would have landed on staying at the ranch, but I, I might be scared. I kind of like Alex, though, where she's like, I don't know that I need this level of fear and running away in my day to day yeah but if she if she is a truly a pioneer spirit though my father was killed and i have been wounded and my fiance have been wounded there's something recklessly defiant in saying i stay there's something reckless about the there's something about the love in youth that is reckless and defiant that makes no sense the mature the the rational decision probably is get me out of dodge let us go where people will not <laughs> shoot at a us hospital let, right these are all valid concerns but there's a reckless defiance in there and says i will not be chased out of this ranch my father has been killed i shall stand there's something there's something very honest and youthful about that in 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 the way young people make bad decisions all of the time. Uh, it's certainly our Tim McGraw, James Dutton a dreamer can all still come true. It's still good. Jack has a bad arm. I have to wonder, and I found myself wondering, is that a permanently injured arm? Because it's a hard thing to be a rancher if you don't have two working arms. You're just going to be pointing at lot. I'm putting my vote in for permanent disability. 
same because I think at the end of the day, I think this is ends up being Spencer's ranch and not Jack's. And I think I think you have to find ways to get Jack out of the picture, out of that chain of out of command and him not having two working hands makes sense to me. And we're 100 percent predicting a I've been here and stayed here the whole time. You're the one that wasn't here on the ranch, kind of like you're not my dad, stepdad kind of talk when Spencer comes back. hundred percent. My dad is dead. Okay. Who are you? Yes. I yes. was here when Where dad was killed. I was right. here when uh, mm-hmm. when uncle was shot to death. I was here when Elizabeth was shot. Where were you? Yep. A hundred percent. It's all coming. And not wrong, but also not mature, right? The, the, the words of youth. Well, I think that's always the the prodigal son conversation, right? There's always got to be someone when that the one comes home uncle. to say, well, someone when when he comes home, somebody's got to say, we're happy to see you. But somebody else has got to say, what the hell? You know, we've all been working where you've been kind of thing. 100%. 100%. Let's talk about Elizabeth's wound because it was interesting. Kara has her cis roll over, which makes me think that maybe it really was a through and through wound. And maybe the it bullet made me did think go through. That too. When she did say that, I thought, oh, Mike's right. It did shoot right through her. Right. And so that makes it really on her left side where there's nothing vital, which for our purposes speaks to wound safety. <laughs> if there is a baby in there, it's potentially okay. Which, again, is is my working theory on this whole thing, is that when we come back, and if it is a year jump, we're going to have a very large Elizabeth uh, getting ready to hatch. Probably a baby. Or a baby already. I want to move on from the smacking, which was so delicious. When Kara spins her around and smacks her, says, I'll discipline my own nephew. Thank you very much in my house. So I smelled that first smack, okay? I smelled that Obviously. He was was insolent. Yeah, she took like one step slap. I saw that, right? And I I said out loud, ooh, I saw that coming. I should have said that. And as my mouth closed and then Kara slaps Mrs. Stratford, I was like, I didn't see that one coming. She like taps her on the shoulder, but kind of spins her like a wrestling move. Like yes. that's like shit you do in wrestling to like yes. to embarrass the uh, to embarrass your opponent is the open hand slap like them ta- or like but tap them on the shoulder too first and make them turn and then come right into your slap. I, I want to get to this interaction outside, though, where uh, Mrs. Stratford has her men have collected Mr. Stratford from the ice box and Kara comes out to tell her that Elizabeth has made her choice. I want to play that clip right here. The girl wishes to stay, marry my nephew, and start her life here. I will not allow it. That is not your decision to make. I will send a car. It will be turned away at the gate. She is my daughter. You have no right. You have no right to decide her fate. That is my right and my right alone. She is free to leave, but you are not free to take her. This is not the Strafford Ranch. This is the Yellowstone, and you have no rights here. And another calamity arrives. I edited that clip to add in that last line, just because it was so funny. It was literally one problem running out one side of the gate, and then the next problem literally coming in to take its place. And another calamity comes. You know, it, it was... She, she's just <laughs> handling shit left and right in this episode. Kara is char- taking charge. She is, you know, explaining it all. She is the modern-day uh, Clarissa. 
I was just going to say Clarissa because you said it like that. That's why I was setting my own self up for it. You did set yourself up. I did. I did. I did. So what what do we think there? Is she fair? Is she being fair to Mrs. Stratford here in balancing grief of a dead husband, uh, losing a daughter? I mean, Miss Stratford went from a family in a very short amount of time to no one. She's leaving here literally empty handed. Well, she's leaving with a dead body, but she's leaving spiritually with nothing. I think that when Kara says she's free to go, but you're not free to take her, that was the line that like kind of hit me in the heart that I was like, oof, because as a mom, that's kind of the line. It's nobody's keeping her here. You know, no one's trying to persuade her to do anything. She's free to leave, but you cannot come in here and manhandle her anymore. That was like a damn, you know, like this woman is grown enough to be married. She's got to have to be grown enough to make her own decision here. All of that. Good writing, because between two moms, that's that, that was some good, real talk. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, I mean, they are both grown women, and I was just chastising Elizabeth and Jack were, were children and acting as such. But Miss Trafford is not a child. Miss Trafford is a grown woman, but Kara is more grown. In, I mean, just pure age. She, she's, she is, she is a grandmotherly <laughs> You're kind of age. You're picking that up from me because I always say someone's being grown. <laughs> Right. Well, it's a pecking order, right? Because it's it's one thing if it's two moms, and and to an extent, Kara is a mom. She she's the matriarch of the family. So when I say it, that's what I mean. So when she when she's sitting hen to hen with Mrs. Stratford, it's really not equal. She really no. does outweigh her in clout. So she can slap her with impunity. If Miss Stratford slaps if slaps Kara, oh, I think people are getting shivved or or shot. <laughs> but I think Kara can get away with that though, because it's like to Mrs. Stratford. Her own mother probably slapping her. There's a power dynamic there, which yes. we have to be sensitive to because they're playing it out well. So I want to make sure everyone's picking up that Kara is asserting the power dynamic here. She is not just a woman here on this ranch. She is the matriarch of this ranch. That line, that clip I just played, everything that took place in that bedroom, all of that speaks to I am the matriarch of this ranch. She's the alpha Kara. She is, she is the lioness. So mm-hmm. let's get to the livestock commission being because this was uh, another high point in the episode. Oh my goodness. I loved this portion. I thought it was, it played out perfectly. Yes. And I feel like this is something that you would do also. I feel it's like it's exactly what I would do. And when she walks out of there and they say, how'd you get the signature? And she said, I signed it. I laughed so loud <laughs> because that is the most wife thing I've ever heard. Let's talk logistics here. It didn't even occur to me if you guys watch Modern Yellowstone, the Duttons of John Dutton and now his son Casey were the livestock commissioner. And actually, I think maybe Jamie also was Lee was all the Duttons. All the Duttons have always been livestock commissioners and they do have police powers. They regularly arrest poachers and and worse. I mean, people that kill cattle and they are always out arresting people, maybe murdering people, beating, you know, like they're acting as a law enforcement agency. And it wasn't until Kara here at this meeting that I realized, why didn't Jacob just arrest Banner for, you know, he didn't actually have to hang them. He should be a law enforcement agent. Well, no, uh, th- this is interesting. So Kara introduces the fact that they actually don't have police powers, that the livestock commissioner at this point in, in, in the timeline actually still has to go get other law enforcement to come arrest and enforce the law. It's what Kara is stating here, what she forged Jacob's signature on, is what creates that ability for future Duttons to go literally do their own justice out in the field. 
huge, a huge moment for mainline Yellowstone because the Livestock Commission and those police powers have come into play a lot over the seasons. So what you're seeing, what you've seen there is literally being introduced here at this meeting by Kara without Jacob's knowledge. A huge moment, a huge moment to let the Duttons go police their fields and 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 the land of Montana kind of with impunity. I appreciated that the way that this played out was that Jacob's signature, his signature in the room was enough to turn the entire tide from zero from zero to the majority. They really weren't even participating in a vote. I mean, nobody even said yay or nay. They all just sat there silently looking at her until Banner Banner challenged it. Right. Right. Well, when she first called for the vote, they weren't even like playing her game at all, you know, until she said, look, I got this signature here and that means something. I hope that that helped any other watcher who doesn't watch Yellowstone or whatever get get a sense again of that of the role of Jacob Dutton and what what that role of the livestock commissioner really means. That his mere signature would mean that all those people would change. I also laughed heartily that there was no actual count of yeas and nays because <laughs> it seemed like half the room <laughs> said no, and so I yeah, was you really had to look it, at the body language. It was the entire left side of the room and. The backside right. of the right room were yays based on body language. Noise wise, those fucking sheep herders in the front right, they made a lot of noise, but they they were physically less. But than, I was than... like laughing because because she was just like, Yays have it. <laughs> and it was like, saunter out the room, see you in a month. And they're like, see you in two weeks. She's like, said a month, see you later. I and love I like, that <laughs> moment because you have these big, burly ass men who run their cattle and are big old cowboys, and you have this little old lady, and none of them challenge her. She is like uh, meeting adjourned. I'll see you in a month. She, uh, two weeks. I said a month is what I said. And <laughs> right. she's like, oh, let's go. Thank you, gentlemen. And she just fucking walks out of there. And then, and then she like shudder breaths when she gets to the stoop. Yeah, because it was like, holy crap. She kept it together that whole time. But think about the power that she, that she, that she wields in there. All of these big men, all of these big rancher men, you expect them maybe not to trance, not to challenge Jacob Dutton, who regularly at meetings is saying shit like, you want to fight me too? That's not camera though, but they 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 get in stride though. I have to ask you a question: Do you think the sheriff really knows Jacob's signature, or was he just playing ball because he also doesn't want to challenge Kara? I think he one thousand percent played ball and wasn't going to say that that wasn't Jacob's signature. How does he even know? Probably, I I I, I won. He's probably seen it, but there's no way he was going to say. Well, I think that he does his J a little differently. Like there was no way he was going to challenge it in the moment. You right, know? right. When when those fiery Irish eyes are down upon him and like, can't you attest to this is Jacob's signature? Yeah, yeah, that looks good to me. I I, I would say the same thing. I would say the same thing. I couldn't even see the paper, and I'm like, yep, that's it. <laughs> I'm not going against it. But uh, this takes us to our last clip of the resiliency and badassery of Kara Dutton right here. You're the fucking liar, woman. I'll kill you where you fucking stand. A liar. Well, you gotta stop right there. Fucking Zeta's the best. You're the fucking liar, woman. I'll kill you where you fucking stand. A liar. Aye. Care to prove it? Shall we go back inside, and you can tell the sheriff the truth? He's not in Wyoming. He's not anywhere. How would you know? How would you know where he is? No bank will let a woman carry a note. No government will transfer a lease for her either. Your little charade can only last so long. 
When my charade is over, so are you. Men kill with bullets or a noose, which is to say men kill quick. Your fight is with me now. I kill much slower. You don't have the army for this fight. Or the money. I have both. I can't wait for you to meet my nephew. <laughs> We've met. The boy doesn't impress. Not that one. Mic drop. The look on Banner's face. He is so fucking puzzled. There's two times there where he is all smug and smagger, swagger. When she comes and spits in his face, it makes him take a step back. And when she says, you know, I kill slower, he, he it knocks him down for a second, but he regroups. And she says, <laughs> not that one. And he's like, well, what the fuck? You could see like the beautiful mind math in his head. He's like, I think I, I thought I fucking killed all the nephews. What's going on? Right, right. Who's left? Great scene, and what a way to introduce the specter of Spencer at this point. This unknown, this guy who's been gone for five years, probably most people outside of the ranch don't know Spencer. He's He was a, probably a little boy, based on the letters that we hear at the end of the episode. Last time he was there before the war, he was young and reckless, and even if you did know who he was, he's not who you think, he's not who's going to show up to avenge his family. And I, I think he is a true Avenger. I think that the skill set that we know he has from all of his time in Africa is going to far surpass the uh, run-a-day, you know, sheep herder's ability to track or to to be able to hunt someone down. I think Spencer's going to be wicked. The 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 hunter of man-eaters all across East Africa, the hunter of lions and leopards, I don't think is going to be really, you know, so plussed about Banner the sheep herder. <laughs> right, right. I don't think he's going to be so thrown. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let, let's stay with Banner, though, because uh, before this, Banner has the swagger because he decides that he is going to go strike a deal with Timothy Dalton, who is playing Whitfield, Donald okay. Whitfield. So here he is the answer to our question from last week about, like, who is behind this, right? Right. Now, unclear. So my, my question, in case you guys are listening out of order and didn't listen to our episode three, was someone has to be funding Banner for him to show up in that that car, which is a luxury at this time. I mean, the Duttons don't even have cars. And and he has a Tommy gun, which is an expensive weapon for this time, maybe for any time. And even access to that weapon. Even access to it. So, and if you look at the people in Donald's office, these are looking like some Chicago-y type guys, some connected. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing my nose to the side, you know, giving the old mafia. <laughs> signal uh, you know they, these guys have family in the union you know they they work in sanitation anywho um yeah so but they don't explicitly say you know i gave you a car and a tommy gun to till to kill jacob but i still feel like this has to be the guy who funded that or made it possible at some point I think so. I mean, I think we're seeing behind the curtain. For one thing, I mean, th we're in we're in episode four. Like, you know, we don't we don't have that many episodes left. Right. You like, got to introduce the start, villain, the true gotta, villain. You got to get behind this, and we got to start figuring out what besides the the quote unquote land, like the the actual like topsoil kind of land, are people looking for now? This concept of mineral rights, this is new for me. I was like, okay, never been talked about in Yellowstone. I mean, I've watched Yellowstone for years. They the and not just not just having gold and silver and coal but the largest deposits in all of montana sit underneath Impressive. the ground at the ranch of the largest deposits of gold and silver and coal this is brand new information that the duttons are sitting on why haven't the duttons exploited some of this i mean i understand why because they are protectors of the land but i mean 
well, let's see. <laughs> They're in financial straits, you know, like, you know, financial dire straits here. So interesting that that's the thing. What do, what are your impressions here? I mean, Timothy Dalton, I only really know is the couple of times he played Bond, uh, you know, some in some failed James Bond movies. I think it was two. Maybe it was one. I don't remember. They weren't very good. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't really know. Well, I mean, but, I, but I think he's a great villain here. That's my first impression. Yeah, yeah. My first impression of him was, was, aha, here's the dude. Here's the dude we've been looking for. The guy with the deep pockets, the guy with, with some sort of other motive that we didn't account for yet. And the mineral rights thing was something that I hadn't accounted for. They said miners. So they did a good job of like putting that in there, right? Like it's going to be the bank, the miners and the thieves. I kind of breezed past the miners. Like, well, okay. I don't know what that means. What exactly? That's never been a thing, right? That's never Mm -hmm. been a thing that we've heard people looking for. But the concept of him, the concept of this villain, of this guy behind the scenes who really is going to come after. I mean, I think this has been extremely well patterned throughout the entire universe of, of Taylor shows. There's always someone bigger, a bigger fish who's hiding behind some little crappy little, you know, piranhas who are just like nipping at the front. There's always something much, much bigger behind that. And if you if you are just starting to watch this universe of shows, put that in the back of your mind. Anytime you see some scrappy little fight, there's really bigger entities behind those two little scrappy fighters. I mean, my impressions, I, my three descriptive words were cold, ruthless, and calculating. And I think you just have mm. to, you just have to listen to the end of this conversation between Banner and Whitfield to, to really get a taste for that, because this is what happens when they actually make the deal. So which do you want? The money or the men? I don't care which. I'll give you the money. You find the men. And when you have it, I mine where I choose and the lease already paid. And you run your sheep where you want. The mountains are mine. Deal. Shake on it. Know this, Banner. If you lie to me, if you steal from me, I won't just kill you. I'll kill your wife. I will skin her alive. And I will bury your children in her fucking hide. Understood. I mean, what else are you really supposed to say to that than other un- than understood? There's really no other response to "I will skin her alive and stuff your children, bury your children in her fucking." <laughs> Can upstate. you imagine then- that? Skin her alive? I know I'm laughing, but it's like it's so it's so heinous. Like like you he said, needs like, a mustache. He should be twirling You're- his mustache. Well, it's like if you are being or like what what are you supposed to say? Like right. mm, gross. Or like like what <laughs> counter proposal? What if you don't? Don't do that, and I pay you an extra percentage point of interest. Wait, could we skip the skinning of yes. my wife? I don't even like my children that much, but let's not stuff them in her fucking hide. How Listen about me, that? If I played that scene and that man said, Timothy Dalton says to me, I must skin your wife, I would literally look them first take and be like, gross. <laughs> And then, and then I would just laugh and be like, all right, go again. Because it is so nasty. That concept is so disgusting and like insane. Like, my God, this guy is not just about mineral rights. He's about skinning people, y'all. This dude is a bad dude. He's also into tanning, as it turns out. Tanning. So. Tanning. <laughs> disgusting. Tanning hides. I get you, but yes. disgusting. I'm sure that was a business at this point. In oh, my God. oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But I, so, so, I mean, the escalation there 
Wow. Yes. Because yes. I, mean, that is, that, I mean, I didn't play the clip because it would have gone too long. But the next line is, this man needs an army. Go get him his money to, to, to his, uh, you know, mafiosa boys that he's got what the is, room with him. Like, yeah, he's just, you know, he's just turning on dime. He's like, as if threatening to skin spouses alive and stuff children in their hides is a regular part of his, like, it's banter. Just, it's just cash. It's, it's just, just cash. I mean, when I, conversation. I mean, I, I'm going to be talking to my clients and I'm worried that this is going to be like a thing, like, take our deal or else I'm going to skin your wife alive and <laughs> bury your children in her fucking hide. I mean, it's so disgusting. Oh my are god, we on for golf so, next week? You know, it's all so cash. Nasty. Oh my god, it's so uh, it's it's hilariously nasty because it's so like it is the it's the epitome. It's the epitome of that escalated quickly. Like, good god, man. Let's contrast that to Tiona. Because, oh God! Well, be, that's a horrible signal. But it's not though, because we're laughing about how vicious this guy is He's sounding sick, right but here. But it's not though. Let's talk about other people's skin. Oh, this was so hard to watch. But why? But because? But the reason it's the reason this it's is different. Unfair. I'm like laughing, and we cannot. I cannot laugh one sentence about Tiona's stuff. You will. You will quickly not be laughing because the reason the reason it's different is because it's this guy saying it to another villain in the show. And it's completely out of the fucking blue. Y'all were just talking about mining for gold. And now you're skinning people alive and stuffing children in their hide? Like, that's a really grand escalation. But Tiona, it's actually happening to her. The torture, I, uh, the flaying, breaking ruler sticks over her face and being like, don't worry, I've got more. She's, uh, Sister Mary is almost, uh, almost hysterical when she says, don't worry, I've got more. You know, she, so she goes to get her ruler. Like, what the actual fuck is wrong with you? Why are so many people getting hit in the face with shovels out in the yard? Picking uh, fruit shouldn't be so crazy. I, I was, I was floored. The level of abuse that, that goes on in this storyline is, it is, it is so much. And it is so like, like you were saying, like there's, there seems to be so much pleasure derived from it for, for some of these, for the abusers. Like they're practically like just gleeful. Yeah. They're like losing their minds about this. It, when Tiona, when Tiona finally says, uh, enough, enough. I know it's okay. 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 And, and she says, okay, what? She's like, okay, I'll, I'll let you say I'll be saved. It's almost orgasmic. Go look at Sister Mary's face and the nuns behind her face. They're almost orgasmic. The one standing over her right shoulder flips to the back of her Bible with such uh, a, 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 a veracity, uh, just like a like a like a thirst for for the cleansing, the baptism, uh, bathed in blood kind of purification thing. It's sick. It's it's truly psychopathic and sick. The 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 sadomasochistic pleasure that they're taking here. I, I gotta tell you, I, I, Tiona's playing the long game here, right? I don't think there was any part of her that was sincerely looking to be saved here. I think no, she's just biding her she's time. Just... She's like, I need to staunch the bleeding so I can get through yeah. this moment. No one thought anyone would be cheering a nun's death, but my God, I was like, the cutting yeah, of the beat, hair of that braid, the shit out of her. No, uh, it no, really, Mike. that really, no, Mike, ups- yeah. that wasn't the part. No, no, that I know, was... I know, no, no, I know. But watching her cut her hair, like it was, it was such horrible. A... And yeah. I'm a woman who like is all about hair. I, know. I so thought of that... you right away with the hair cutting. Yeah, like, uh, the, it was awful. But but the coil brush it... on her back because. The... It's it's not just that. It's the she thought she was safe for a second. There was a second where she thought it was over. Well, they're cutting her bindings. Like, all right, you're cutting my hair. 
Okay. But they thought she thought it was over. And that that is the, that was the moment in Game of Thrones that made me just finally have to be like, I can't see this, is when the character has hope. There's the moment of hope. And this is something that is talked about so much in this episode, in these episodes, about the danger of hope and and like how much that can be so dangerous. And I when oh my God, when she got in that tub and she really thought it was over, and then they start up with that freaking thing on her back, I was like Oh my God, we all had hope. We all had hope for a minute. And they actually like had us, had us experience hope for a second and then see it get taken away like that was just like, Oh my God, we were so in her shoes. You know, we, we felt like, Oh my God. All of these scenes. I have felt these scenes in my skin. I have felt these scenes in my oh, teeth. My stomach hurts every single time it all starts. I'm, oh, you guys, I know we were like laughing about the banner scene and that kind of like moved us into the Tiona scene, but I, we, we want to be super clear. Like this is so well, awful. It's the juxtaposition of it. I mean, the reason I, the reason I connected them was because, because it's so comical listening to, uh, you know, Whitfield threaten this to banner. But th- it's really happening. To it's really girl. happening to another character. These these horrendous things. The equivalent of of sk- being skinned alive. I and mean, we're watching someone literally get flail flayed in this episode. Uh, if you guys are wondering and you want to go do some research on your own, the the nun who's preaching the Bible verses while they're doing this purification ritual to her, she's quoting from a couple of different Bible passages. I tracked down the general chapters. If you want to go look at them, depending on which translation you look at, the words are slightly different, but the verses are there. She starts off, she's in Revelation, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. She's like hitting one through five verses, and then she jumps to like verse 10. She is in the first letter of John, the first epistle letter of John, chapter three. She's in the first epistle letter of Peter, chapter five. And she is in the letter of James, chapter four. Those are the general four sections she's pulling from in that purification uh, section. So if you if you want to go read them in kind of context, because uh, I think what we're watching here is is this purification ritual as far as they see it this this slash purification slash baptism slash exorcism they're all kind they're kind of doing it all to her here because she has said that she wants to be quote-unquote saved this is this is the price of being saved in this world it's it's just insane. I, it, it's so hard to take. That takes us into the nighttime when she she prepares to make war and watching her just kind of methodically and quietly plan, you know, packing up her clothes, packing up, packing up a little rucksack for herself, but also pre- preparing the um, the pillowcase of Bibles. You know, yeah. it's it's essentially like a like a like a sock full of quarters a sock man. full of quarters or a or a pillowcase full of like doorknobs but she's doing it with bibles for the you know delicious metaphor of it all i i it was brutal to watch her uh, kill sister mary the way she pummels her face and then jumps on her chest and and the and the own look on her face i mean there is a gleeful there's a gleeful look, crazed gleefulness on her face as she stuffs her mouth and then pinches her nose closed. But it was so it was brutal, but it was super cathartic. I I I have never wanted a character to be killed more than I enjoyed watching that uh, Sister Mary be killed. I agree with you. I mean, when you see an abuser like that finally come to an end and you can feel like at least for like one millisecond she can exhale, Tiona can feel like, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, but it is the danger of hope and scares me so much about what next steps are. I really... Please let Tiona, I'm like praying to the Yellowstone writer gods, please let her get out of here in one 
swift motion. Please don't have the scene where she gets pretty far away. She trusts somebody, which is my worst feeling. She trusts somebody and that somebody betrays her and drags her back there. Or that her friend betrays her. Please and don't like, let and, it be that. And then gives her up quicker than she should have out of her own fear for herself. So that's the thing that really hurts more than anything else. If it's if it's the one friend she thinks she has in this world is the one who ends up betraying her confidence. Um, because she told her where she's going. She's like, I'm going home. So they're going to know the general direction to look for her to be going in. Yep. So they're going to squeeze the friend. I just, I just want to read it real quick, only because I think it's important as she's killing her and she's doing her own ritual here when she's sitting on top of Sister Mary. She's talking to her in her native language, but she's kind of chanting at her in her language. This is this is the phrasing, if you guys didn't read or didn't, didn't absorb the uh, subtitles. She says, no, this is my language. Know these are the words of this land. Know I am the land. Know it is the land that is killing you. I am the land, and I am killing you. Uh, there, there's a pattern there. there. There's a sick poetry to that. There, there's a ritualistic chant to that, and she utters it in that kind of way. So it's interesting that she is responding to what she went through just this afternoon with her own ritual, and this one has a finality to it. What do you think? What's your prediction for the residential school? I mean, she has one foot out the door now as we're watching her at the end of this episode. What do you think? Does she cleanly get away to somebody, or are we jig-jagged back and forth, yanked around? I don't think she gets dragged all the way back. I think there's going to be some close calls. We know from a trailer scene that launched before the show even launched launched there's a scene in the trailer that we haven't seen yet of uh, father renaud and other people walking shoulder to shoulder in a field my guess has to be that is a search for her that's the only thing i can think of or a search for something uh, relating to her escape so i think it's going to be a series of close calls i don't think it's going to be easy i think she's going to endure more hardship along the way i don't see her getting dragged all the way back to school because narratively we know she's a rainwater we know she has to get back to montana at some point got my fingers crossed i cannot stand the betrayal storyline it rips my heart out so whether it is i really don't the friend isn't the betrayal that's not that it's that she's going to meet a stranger out in the world who she thinks she vets well enough to trust and that person is the betrayer and that because that person represents like the whole rest of the world, like who would the potential of anybody to help her is is like embodied in this whomever that person's going to be. And I pray that person is someone she could really actually trust. And hopefully maybe she ends up going to the Dutton Ranch and hiding out there for a while or something. I don't know. But I am just like, please don't let that betrayal storyline happen, because you guys, as it happens on screen, you will you guys will all feel Caroline's heart just break purely in half when it happens because i hate that storyline so much it makes me so sad but you know why people use that as a tv trope all the time because it's real you can't really trust people you can't really trust people nor should you you should not trust strangers especially but i'm the worst and i always do The other episode theme, we talked about the resiliency and badassery of Kara Dutton. That was one of the episode themes for sure that played out throughout the episode. The other one was, and you've mentioned it already, and Tiona is a great example of it, the danger of hope. The idea of hope is in this episode throughout it. The idea of hope, the idea of faith, the idea that Duttons don't trust in hope or faith, but push against fate. They try to make their own 
path. They they don't rely on uh, the forces in nature as a, as a rule. Um, so let, let's play a couple of the clips that kind of connect this idea of the danger of hope here and, and uh, break it down a little bit. You didn't ask how he was doing? Well, I figured you'd tell me if you wanted me to know. He survived the night. That's a start. Now we just have to focus on the next night. Hope's a dangerous thing, ma'am. Tricks your mind into seeing this world. They never coming true. It's best you say goodbye to them while you still can. No room for miracles in your world, I see. There's room for them, ma'am. I just never seen anyone wish one up. I mean, that's very pragmatic. That's a cowboy who has seen a lot of bad things probably happen in his life, who just witnessed the only family he probably knows. I mean, based on the racing to the barn, Zane doesn't have a wife or family of his own. He has the Duttons, and he's seen half of them killed or, or gunned down recently. Not a guy who is in the position to be really peachy on miracles coming out or, or resting your hopes on hope, you know, or resting your fortunes on hope. There's something about the concept of because Fiona was talking about the land and sort of that she's the land and, and, and that this is what's happening. And then thinking about hope and thinking about this idea of like fighting against what is supposed to be happening. Like the Duttons want to make their own fate and make their own destiny and all that stuff. But in a way there's something about that, that feels very forced and very like you're, you're swimming against the tide of, of what like is supposed to naturally unfold. All of that really makes me feel like, you know, this larger picture of like nature versus man versus whether you're like living in harmony with the, you know, the land around you versus fighting against it and trying to change it into something it's not and all that. It, it absolutely flows Tiana, Tiana in there for me. I don't know what to think about the Duttons then. Do you want to be a Dutton and be fighting against what, what is considered fate or destiny? Because you think it's sort of like your goal to like mold your own future. Does that put you at odds with the natural state of things without you really being able to help that? Because you are trying to mold the future. You can't, you can't let the stream flow naturally if you're trying to mold it all the time, right? Into a direction you want it to go. So does that like just automatically put them at odds with with the situation i think a little bit i mean i think there's a middle ground to be there and i think zane may be taking a more of an extreme side of it i want to play the the carrot clip after she goes out to the field the second time this right before zane interrupts her the, just to listen to that because i think maybe that sheds more light on it and then obviously you have the elsa clip about hope which will play last as another example of uh, or take on dutton's idea of hope but let's listen to kara who now remember has thought she lost her husband and now he's actually speaking to her which is not something that she could have imagined uh, the day before and he's giving her good advice and they're still being able to act as a team she thought that hope was gone i've used hope i've used it all right, she starts off right there. I refuse to hope. I refuse it. She's angry. She's clutching a cross that she wears around her neck, and she's she's starting off by saying, I refuse to hope. That is the Dutton motto. That's what Zane is saying. I refuse to hope. I, I don't want to be subject to the whims of something I can't control. But she, she softens, though, and let, that's why you got to listen to the whole clip. I refuse to hope. I refuse it. You brought him back. I will believe in it. I will trust it. 
is the it God? Is the it hope? Is the I refuse to hope, I refuse it, but you brought him back. I will believe it. I will trust it. Is it not hope that she's putting her trust in, but is it the power of God? Is it the power of, of the land? If you're Tiona, is it the power of, of just a force greater than you that, that she is being forced to put her faith in? And this is the difference between hope and faith. You know, maybe mm-hmm. we don't hope, but maybe you can still have faith. I, I, that feels right. That feels more like having some amount of faith that things can be okay feels differently it's like holding space for something to be okay versus like sitting there and begging and hoping and wishing the universe for something to happen that feels different you know it's like it's like she it feels to me like she's just leaving room for the possibility that this could be okay and she's just gonna put her energy into that space rather than trying to like beg the universe please let this happen in a certain way it's like trying to hedge your bets against the danger of hope but you're still a little bit at the whim uh, the 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 whim of of the danger of hope it very much feels like not shit out of pepper. Like, I mean, faith and hope go hand in hand. So it's very, very difficult to tease that out and say like, well, I'm not hoping for something to happen. I just have faith it will happen. Okay. <laughs> it's, right. you know, okay. But but there is something there that is interesting about the Duttons. And I, and I keep wanting to kind of want to discuss or keep on our bulletin board this idea of if you continuously try to mold your future with too strong of a grasp and you don't let things naturally unfold at all then are you constantly at this like headbutting with with just the universe that you kind of turn into a villain or you kind of turn into the negative because you're no part of you is going with the flow your your plans are starting to compete with the plans of the universe can you get along for very long when you're at odds with the universe i don't know how many generations <laughs> yeah seven <laughs> um <laughs> but you get what i mean like does I it do. start to automatically make you maniacal if you start to go start to push so hard that you kind of lose your way? Well, isn't that I mean, is that the saying is the harder you squeeze to hold on, the more it slips through your fingers? I mean, sure. This is the reason the saying is there. Let's review where we we've what we've seen here. We've we've seen hope, the danger of hope. Now we have the idea of hope and faith and how they may be at odds, or maybe we can we can thread the needle and, and have faith but not rely on hope. And then we have Elsa comes in right after Kara is is talking to the ether. Elsa joins us for the episode and she introduces this idea of there's hope, faith, sure, and then there's fate and there's pushing against it and and trying to make your own way and and saying my destiny will not be written for me and I will write mm-hmm. my own destiny. Let's listen to Elsa as we cap the idea of hope as an episode. There are only 3 answers to a prayer. Yes, not yet. And I have something else in mind for you. Man's great challenge is trusting not yet or something else and avoiding the foolish notion of hope. Wishing to nothing that your unanswered prayer is granted. Hope is a surrender of authority to your fate and trusting it to the whims of the wind. My family does not hope. We fight for what we believe until we have it. 
or we are destroyed by the pursuit. That feels right to me. That that feels the most Dutton of uh, the most Dutton encapsulation of all the generations we've seen. Think back to 1883 and there's a conversation. I think it's Elsa asks her mother. She says, do you do you believe in where we're going? And Margaret essentially paraphrasing essentially says, I have faith in your father. I don't know that I'm convinced about where we're going, but I have faith in your father. James didn't hope it worked out. James had a plan that he was pursuing and he was either going to achieve it or he was going to be destroyed in the pursuit of it. And ultimately his daughter was destroyed in the pursuit of it, but he made it and Margaret made it and John made it. And then Spencer came, but, but one by one, three of those five were destroyed by that pursuit. And now Spencer is the only one who remains of that core. But in that case, to finish that out, you said three out of five were destroyed in that pursuit, Four. but in that pursuit was successful. He got the Yellowstone. He got the homestead. You know, he he got what he was looking for, you know, in many ways. I mean, it still took more generations to actually build, you know, what it what it became. But at the same time, like, would you consider it a success for him? Like he got his family all the way there from Texas. Well, yes and no. I mean, do we ever think our jobs are finished, though? Right. I don't know. This is what I'm saying. Or is it successful that so many died? Like, is it okay to lose so many family members in the process? I mean, if you're if you're let's be Thomas and Shea in 1883. Yeah, they got some people to where they were going, but 99% of their immigrants died, were massacred, were were killed along the way. Virtually no one made it there, but in, in technically they made it there, but at what cost? At what cost does being destroyed along the way defeat whether or not you've actually achieved it? And the Yellowstone Ranch itself is an even harder case because remember the opening voiceover that Elsa talks about, you know, my uncle came when Margaret wrote and he watched an empire and then the empire crumbled. Well, does the fact that the empire crumble outweigh the success that you've had along the way? Does the fact that John made it 45 years of life, but then died in defense of the land, does that defeat having achieved founding the Yellowstone? I don't know that you ever get there. I don't know if you ever get there. And I don't know if the collateral damage is ever worth it, you know, because, you know, like I'm thinking of Mrs. Tradford. I'm thinking of her saying, I, I want to see my grandkids. I want to see my family grow and live and, and all this stuff. And staying in this frontiersman's life, you know, in this rancher life where we're still just clawing to survive First of all, at this stage in 1923, it's unnecessary. There's other ways to live. There's more, quote unquote, civilized, more progressive, more comfortable ways to live. We don't have to live this life. So it's like they're still living out this dream of having all this. And then it's like, okay, we had it, but at what cost? And that, that's pretty much been the question mark of this entire universe too. You can reach your dreams, but at what cost? And at what point was it successful or do you finally have to say like boy i don't know and i'm not, i'm going to mull on the concept of hope and and faith and and all that stuff and what that means because i'm going to hang on to that on our bulletin board all the way through this series because there was a lot of talk about like freedom in our first uh, in 1883s, you know, conversation, there was a lot of us talking about like, what is freedom? What does it mean to be free? You know, wh- what is all that? And I think that there's something here 
that's worth like mulling on about hope and also that that feeling of of going along with nature versus like molding nature into what you think it should be. Also, Elsa talks about our family doesn't hope we we fight until we get what we want or we're destroyed in the pursuit. She's talking about it here in very black and white terms, which she can do because she is dead and she. <laughs> That's a hilarious way to say uh, but, it. But she, but she has a different perspective on it versus, say, Kara and Jacob, who the Dutton Ranch is a cattle farm. And in that bed, holding hands as Jacob clings to life, they make the decision to let the herd go because it's not worth another life, not one more life lost over it. Which is interesting, right? Which is interesting because life is is not actually black and white, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you can say, I am either black or I am white and that is it. But when push comes to shove, life is never black and white. Life is always gray. Even the most staunchest, this is how it is. When push comes to shove, you're like, well, I can maybe give here so that I can get this. We all swim in gray. And that's actually life. And you see that in this episode. There's no two more staunch defenders of this land alive in 1923 than Jacob and Kara Dutton. And they're saying, let the herd go. Let our livelihood go so that we can spare one more life. That's Zane's life. That's Jack's life. That's the random cowboy's life that we don't even know their fucking names. They're more important than our livelihood. That's great. That goes against what Elsa is saying. But Elsa is dead 40 years at this point, and she has the luxury of talking in black and white because she doesn't actually have to live it anymore. When Elsa was alive, Elsa didn't live black or white. Elsa lived a whole life of gray. I love Ennis. I love Sam. I'm all, she's a whole life of gray. Do you know where it's never gray, Mike, seemingly? I don't know. It's always gray in New York, it seems. So. <laughs> in this sexy blue lagoon that we find Alex and Spencer, that place is blue and shiny and gorgeous. Enough of the war. Time for the turquoise tie. Is that what yeah. you're saying? That was some very saucy lingerie that old Alex is sporting. It was, it was very flappy in just the right ways, right? Like it was like just a little side cheek, just a little bit of side boob, but then like full on boob. We got lots of boob in this one. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to ask you, we talked about this in 1883 with the romance aspect of it. And one of the questions that you had, rightfully so, because it, it did come up was, are people tuning into this for the romance? Do they want to see Jack and Elizabeth having sex for the first time? Do they want to see Spencer and Alex hump all over Africa? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think no, certainly we're not prudes and I, certainly into the sexiness of it. I don't think it bothers us. I think I think we're actually very into this aspect of the show. But I'm curious your thoughts of the burly people who come here for the cowboy shit, doing cowboy things. Hmm. Is this I mean, is this too much for them though? Well, I think that it gets it gets a little dicey because I would have said that the Yellowstone in general, as a, as a whole franchise, is something that you could watch with people sixteen and older, you know, and not worry about anything really. I mean, cursing. I wouldn't worry about anything. Yeah, but I'm saying sixteen or older. I mean, don't you think that's like okay? Oh, the cursing. I mean, yes. I mean, certainly you have seen Beth's boobs several times. Yes, there's some Beth boobs. That's 
that's true. I don't know. So uh, the only thing that's my but not only... to this extent, and that's over five seasons. I mean, we... and not usually in this super duper sexy way. Like when she was like sitting in the in a horse she... trough, right? She was having like a PTSD it. about her mother being dead. Right. That really wasn't you know sexy. <laughs> you know, but it was. Well, 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 right. well right, it was not right. intended to be sexy. Let's okay, say it that okay, way. Okay. But for sure, I mean, I would say that I I personally didn't need it. I don't know. You 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 speak for your own self, but for myself, I didn't need it. She could have left her lingerie on. I didn't need to see total bare boobs in order for me to understand the sexiness of the moment or anything. I understand the isolation, the fact that they're just two people alone, like they're the only two people in the world. Like I think I think that's what all of this opening stuff was about. I think the swimming in the water, and I think the canoeing and being alone on the beach, and then having the sex on the beach, and him unwrapping her on the beach, and all of the, the all of the ravishing talk. I think all of that goes to for right now these two are the only two in the world Mm -hmm. they don't care it doesn't matter what's happening in london with her parents it doesn't matter what's happening back in nairobi with her runaway bride fiance it doesn't matter what's happening in montana with spencer's family they are the only there are no there are despite what spencer says there are no leopards or lions here they are the only two here in the world and i think that's what this is all about i i can see where some people will be turned off of it i don't need to see i don't need to see the the breasts and and the the butt i you get i get it also i'm i'm not turning it off i'm not certainly not offended by it but i, I don't need it either my only concern is that I would hate for people to not watch because they feel embarrassed to watch with their grandmother in the room or, or something your like kid. that. Like, I mean, right, I, I right. mean, Tom we is 14. Uh, yeah, I don't know right. that I want and, I would be like, yeah, close your eyes here for this part. Well, and I was watching this in with kids in the room and my, my kids are 19 and 20. And so there's no there's nothing about it to be like, yeah, it's a boob, you know, right, okay, it's not whatever. pornographic. It's certainly not. It's certainly not distasteful. But was it necessary? It's probably not necessary. I don't I'm going to say not necessary. Like, we would have gotten it. We would have understood it. Even if her chest was up against his, we would have gotten it without needing to show it. So, I don't know. They could dial that back a little bit as far as I'm concerned because I still think it's incredibly sexy. Here's here's what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is, is silly sexy? Because old Alex was pulling the silly card and trying to make jokes and be all goofy. And Spencer was having none of it when he was like... I want to show you something. Truly means I found a new place to ravage you. You notice that? <laughs> yes, I've detected the pattern. Get on with it then. If you must. <laughs> Promise me. It will always be this. Always an adventure. It'll never be dull. I can promise you that. Even when we're old and frail, and all the ravaging is behind us, what then? Wheelchair race. <laughs> Challenge accepted, sir. Alex. Spencer. Shut up. <laughs> Oh, my apologies. I have interrupted your ravaging. Please carry on. And it goes on like that for a little bit Now, I don't want to tip my hand. (laughs) But I am a silly sexier. (laughs) 
And I am definitely going to be laughing and joking. And I have been told on multiple occasions that silly is not sexy and to cut that shit out. But I can't help but be a little laugh monkey. And so I feel badly that Spencer's like, stop it. Shut up. I will will speak to the way it is portrayed in the show. I find it incredibly sexy, as I think does Spencer. I think Spencer likes having to grab the side of her head and say, darling, shut up. I think he very much (laughs) likes that. I think it very much, it's part of her charm. I, I have, I have later on in my notes because I think it comes up even better later on, but I like the fact that she is so kind of goofy, but then has the ability to be serious or sincere and talk about real topics because he is serious and wants to talk about serious topics and sincere topics, but has the ability to be goofy they make so much sense and i think they work so well for me i think they're so sexy together because they complement both of those aspects of the other okay i'm for it but okay so is still is silly sexy god i hope so i i may never have sex again (laughs) if it's not it's like my it's like my main thing so you're 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 silly sexier uh yes oh no well like silly sexier but like within like a like a little bit of a growl Oh, so yeah. you're a little like Spencer. You're a little like knock that shit off. When there's like a time when you're like that's enough. We're yeah, not yeah, being yeah exactly. Anymore. Right, right, right. Be like yes, yes. You can. Yeah, let let's play fight. Let's play wrestle. But at some point, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna grab the side of your head and be like enough. You know, <laughs> stop, that's hilarious. Stop, stop being a squirmy worm. <laughs> stop being a squirmy worm. We gotta oh get. It, we gotta get to business. <laughs> That's hysterical. All right. Well, so I, so the whole Alex Spencer goofiness love scene totally works for, for us, I guess. Yeah. The only part of the scene that didn't work for me is the sex in the sand. No, thank you. No, ma'am. We're not having sex in the sand. (laughs) That shit is going to get everywhere. You're going to be digging Uh, out of your butt crack and out of your pubes. Every, no, no. Go get a blanket. You have this beautiful, like, cabana on the beach thing. Just lift her up and carry her there. Go have your sex there, for God's sakes. Or have sex in the water where it just kind of washes everything over and over again. Don't have sex in the sand. And she's probably wet from splashing in the water when she jumps out of the canoe. Oh, my God. That's all I could think about. Well, it's not the only thing I could think about. (laughs) But uh, but I was definitely thinking about don't have sex in the sand. Sex in the sand is is overrated way too much. It's one of those things that only sounds good in theory. It is only good on paper. It is not good in practice. Agree, agree, agree. However, I do want to say that I thought when they were swimming out in the water, every part of me was on high alert because all yeah. i could think is this is the african yeah. fucking shark it's gonna come out of the ocean area here yep. and there and just that there's all kinds of animals whether it be like snakes or eels or alligator or well, i were, don't freaking know what you because know just the way they were the shooting water. it they were far apart he she they and were they kind of splashing in a way yes. that was like what's right the, behind them or the what's camera going on? was in the water with them so it was making splashing mm-hmm. sounds on the microphone was getting picked up and if you listen the audio i i don't think they ate the this or they 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 adr'd it in a way that felt like they at least like um, explain to listeners what that is uh automatic dialogue replacement basically when a shot is not viable for audio the way it was filmed either because it was shot on a street or for whatever reasons the microphone doesn't pick up the audio from the actual shoot the actors will come back go into a sound booth and match up their lip movement with the dialogue they'll essentially re-record the dialogue dialogue matched 
to the film and that gets cut in. Now, well done ADR. You don't necessarily notice it. Most ADR, though, you can pick up because the intonation will suddenly be different or the quality of the audio will be different or the energy level will be different. It's very hard to recreate perfectly the moment from when you did it in a sound booth but that's called ADR. So it's essentially recording over your own dialogue so that the audio is usable. You get it a lot, a lot of uh, when movies or TV shows are shot outdoors because there are elements that affect the ability of the microphone that's hanging above their heads that you can't see. The boom mic doesn't always pick it up in a clean way for whatever reason. This didn't feel like they ADR'd it. So the audio actually is a little muffled here because it felt like the camera was actually in the water with them. But so you get the splashing effect and they're kind of far apart if something did attack her he was too far apart to grab her i was 100 percent with you i thought a shark or something was going to come shark. it felt like shark crocodile just some sort of i mean a hippo hippos are yes. freaking vicious in the water and i mean vicious and they are fast aren't hippos the number one killer of man or is that right yeah, they're is, nuts it's, like it's that hippos or rhinos are like the number one killer of man i believe it's hippos i was just watching this thing where like these people were like in a boat and this hippo like turns around and just like friggin comes at it and i mean I there was nothing about all of this in Africa that felt like we should have even one scene without an animal because that was kind of like you know the whole thing of Africa right is that the animals are not like uh, bowing down to us like we're on their land and we are definitely going to accidentally cross them so there was a lot of tension for me that was balancing all the sexiness with the holy shit something is absolutely going to come out of the jungle or come out of the water and at least bite a leg off or something you know, yeah. because it just feels like that's where we're going with this. I was thankful it didn't happen. And I really have to say, I thought the way that they handled filling in some of the backstory and dealing with Spencer's demons through this reading of the letters aloud while we're drinking and kind of talking and laughing. I really absolutely saw myself in Alex with the whole like, I'm a jealous person and I absolutely 100% am not going to share you with your demons. All of that was like, damn, I would have written that in my diary. Uh, I love it. Um, it was so good and so well done. I know you loved it. I mean, there was there was so much in that back and forth of building the rapport of these characters and their development. But yeah, but we can't leave the war yet because I think what happens in with the letters later on is builds upon about their conversation war. Before we get to that, though, uh, hippos are responsible for more than 500 deaths of human a year as compared to only 22 for lions. Hippos are, in fact, one of the most dangerous animals to humans don't fuck with hippos is i guess I'm the scared. point you guys go watch some tiktoks or some reels or something about hippo attacks it's nuts and it would have been warranted in this case let's go back into the water because there's an interesting conversation when when the subject of london comes up and if spencer's ever been there alex says that they were going to periodically have to go to london to annoy her parents and also to beg her father for money interesting but she asks if he's been there and she mentioned he mentions that he was stationed there before he got sent to the front in world war one and it has this kind of conversation that reveals layers only uh, not only about Spencer, but also about Alex, too. And I, I think it, it makes both of them a little more real. Yes, the war about nothing that cost us everything. What did it cost you? The brother. What did it cost you? Harder to find. My soul, I think. I'm getting that back. Never underestimate the healing powers of a good ravaging. I must warn you, sir, one can become quite addicted. I think it's best we ration your medicine. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's for your own good, sir. 
<laughs> I do it out of love. Look how wrong my plan is working. I'm so pleased with myself. I watch these two with the dumbest, goofiest grin on my face. Even listening to the audio, I have such like a like like goofy grin on my face. I just love them so much. <laughs> when she says like the whole thing, we could all use a little bit more sassy dialogue like this in all the shows we watch. No, the whole thing. Never underestimate the healing power of a good ravaging and and you know just the, the, you could probably pick up a woman in a bar with that. Uh, what did she say? She says after that, she basically, she's complimenting herself. She's like, my plan is working perfectly. It's just adorable. I, I, I just watch these two with like the, just the dumbest grin on my face. It, it all works for me, but they both need each other. And, and think back to Kara's letter at the end of the first episode that she writes when the, when the men are away, I guess it's actually episode two. The episode that she first writes a letter to Spencer, you know, she says, I hope you find whatever part of you is missing so you can come home again. He knows it. I mean, it's it's a nice tie back to that letter because Kara suspects that he has lost a bit of himself from the war. And he says here, I did. I lost my soul, but I'm getting it back thanks to you. Like, you're healing me. This is a thing. This is a real thing. Broken people can be healed by other people. And maybe you haven't experienced that. But if you have experienced that, this will resonate with you. Finding that person that can heal you is real and it is powerful. And that connection, why are these two so hot and heavy so fast? They don't even know each other. Because when you find the person that makes you feel like you are healing and you're finding your soul again, that's powerful. And you can't walk away from that. And that doesn't sorcel you. And it will take you along and will sweep you up and it should and you should let it and you should open yourself up to it and you should go splash in the beautiful waters of zanzibar <laughs> you should blue lagoon it yeah god i just love that scene so much um but but that scene though <laughs> I like and, how taken you are with the whole thing i, I mean you, you've got to give some some a, a moment to the writer on that and say like good job taylor for totally like he's he's got a very romantic vibe in inside of him right i mean he can write some of these scenes yeah that are pretty darn enticing enticing and sexy and sweet and tender like that's an aspect of of the show that we really haven't gotten before we got a little bit with uh Elsa's character in 1883, but Yellowstone is not a show that I would ever use the word tender about. There's been a ton of tender, real human, human experience moments so far, and then we're just four episodes into the show. It's it's refreshing, and I'm impressed, and I'm totally swept away with it. I mean, maybe this doesn't work for everyone, but it I, having gone through something like this i it resonates with me and i am i wrapped around the finger of the storyline so (laughs) i love it it's healing your soul it is it is one good ravaging at a time so oh my god (laughs) uh but that takes us though into the end scene and then again this entire scene worked for me from her acknowledging his demons and not being scared by them remember he (gasps) What did you think of her with the jealousy line? What did you think? It's a nice twist, right? She's, you know, the idea of she's a jealous lover, so she's going to chase his demons away. That's a very sweet, goofy, silly way of saying, I'm here and I'm not scared of whatever your issues are. Remember, he tells her, remember, uh, are you afraid there are things about me that you're not going to like? I guarantee you there are plenty. 
This is one of those things that I think he's probably terrified of her knowing about him, how broken he is. I mean, he's confessed to not having a soul, to having lost his soul, but she's still here and she's still in her goofy ass way saying, I'm going to help you and I'm not going to run. And we're going to, we're going to start the healing process here by reading these letters. And I agree. I think that is the right place to start the healing, confronting it. Let's listen to the clip and then let's talk about it because we're talking a little abstractly. So for those that aren't, uh, or weren't focused on this, cause you were still thinking about the ravaging in the sand. War's not living. War is. If insanity was a thing you could touch. That's what war is. A letter is a window out of that hell for a minute. But it's a double-edged sword. Missing home and dreaming has killed more soldiers. You want to eat a bolt in battle, you start wishing for a letter. There's so many letters of dead men, we bundled them up and made furniture out of them. I credit not reading them for keeping me alive. Then the war's over and I got, got two years worth of it. And I just felt guilty. Now I don't know what I feel. I, I spend most of my time trying not to. Tell you. There's something you should know about me. I'm a very jealous lover. I will not share you with your demons. So we must find them. And chase them all away. I try not to feel until I met you. I mean, the power of a good ravaging cannot be understated. It's working. We're watching it work right here. What's your whole take on this scene? I, I know this resonated with you in the Alex role. Oh gosh, it's just because I would I would play it the same. Like I I a hundred percent would need my partner to face whatever baggage they had because you know there's one thing to say there's things about me that you're not going to like or there's or I have habits or I have things about my past that are going to be difficult and all that all of those things anybody could say that but to have a partner who's saying you know what we all have that and it's cool but uh you're gonna have to go ahead and go face them and we're gonna have to go do this together and we're gonna have to chase them away because we can't walk into our lives with you also holding the hands of all these demons like this isn't gonna work out I appreciated that bold talk and that and that true understanding of like this is what a healthy relationship looks like and it can't be with you dealing with all this crap from the past like it's got to be dealt with head on no matter how big and scary it all is I think the reading of the letters together like really gave them the opportunity to develop these characters for us and and their relationship because you really got like like no holds bar like Spencer didn't know what was going to be in those letters and he was letting her open each one that's some extreme vulnerability to let her like read them out loud, not knowing what, what it was going to say, you know, what it might say to her about him. Yeah, no, I, I so I have a four point list on why I oh like why I like the scene of Cara, of Kara's letters being read by Alex. One. It helps us and Alex. You're going to make me spit my iced tea. <laughs> it helps us and Alex get to know Spencer. These two people, for as kismet as they are, as meant to be as they seem to be, and as they're seizing on, don't really know each other. 
And Alex seems like someone who casually spits out the entirety content of their life in just conversation, maybe while having sex, be like, I've got a mother and I've got a father and I've lost a brother in war. Like just kind of, she's just, she's just, she's, she's an open book. I don't think Alex is keeping a lot hidden here. Spencer is the opposite. Spencer, I think is all layers and all secret locks and all closed doors and getting to read these letters allows us and Alex get to know him. Super important. Watching Alex read Kara's letters in her voice and then or in a couple of them overdubbing Kara's voice and then coming back to Alex's voice i think it shows us and it starts to subconsciously introduce the idea as Alex as the next generation's Kara i think it is it is telling us in a subliminal way not out out but i think it's subliminally telling us this is a woman who has the voice to speak with the matriarch at some point in the future i very much like the idea that kara and and alex are kind of mushing into uh this one matriarch voice uh and by reading the letters that is a very it's a visual way to do it um as well as like an auditory cue to us that like you know she is the voice now of the matriarch of the family very cool three I think this adds real substance to their relationship. The most of their relationship has either been uh, fight or flight or sex. That has been the majority of their relationship, which is great to watch, but not a lot of substance. I think this section or you say crisis. Every part of their of the their interactions have been crisis or chaos, right? Or sex. Which I'm still going with some sort of chaos with that. Okay. Well, okay, but but something something extreme, something heightened. But this is real substance. This is a controlled environment. This is adding substance, but this is the I word. This is intimacy. This is a tremendous amount of intimacy. This is what you're getting at with the vulnerability, I think. This is a level of intimacy far beyond any amount of sex they've had together. You don't have to know someone to have sex with them. You need to be comfortable with and be intimate with someone to have them open up 40 letters that you don't know what they say, what they possibly could say about you or your family or anything, and have and trust that person to read them aloud, to keep That's reading brave, them. Right? To, it's very brave to keep reading them after you fall asleep, which I love that Alex does because she wants to know him. She so wants to know him, and this is a great way for her to do that. But he trusts her to keep doing that. He's comfortable. He's making himself vulnerable. This is intimacy. If 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 guys, if your your partner, your spouse ever says, "Why are we ever intimate?" This is what they're talking about. They're not talking about humping in the bathroom at the bar. They're talking oh about God. why won't <laughs> reading letters, letting me read letters from from your aunt about what you, you were don't like even as a know child. the content. See that that part is the big part to me is that that you don't even know the content of these letters. You don't know if it's going to say Spencer is the biggest dick that ever walked the earth in a negative way, not in a big Dutton energy kind of way. Like he's the biggest liar, you know, disloyal, whatever. You don't know what it's going to say, and you're letting this woman open up every letter and read aloud that is some sincere trust and and you know belief that that whatever it says she's going to stick around that's impressive and the fourth and final reason is that it shows us the time jump it's the final part of this mid-season finale episode and it introduces the fact that we have moved three months into the future let's go through the letters really quickly there were six that we get read aloud just only because a couple of them were interesting. So I just want to highlight them. The first letter that we read aloud is Kara writing this uh, about the German spring offensive. So that places it between March and June of two of 1918. That was, that was the time span of the German spring offensive in World War One. 
uh, Germany was trying to end the war, essentially. the Russia had collapsed. They had signed a treaty. They had backed out of the war at this point. America wasn't up to full snuff because we only entered the war in 1917. So we didn't have all of our troops there. So Germany decided to launch this spring offensive to try and swiftly end the war before the American troops were at full strength, while the French and British troops were virtually on on the verge of collapse. And it worked for a while, and they gained a lot of land, but eventually the Americans did show up, the Americans did buffer, and did end up supporting the French and the British. The war ends in November of that year. Ultimately, the German spring offensive fails, and the war comes to an end by the end of the year because the Americans do show up. Uh, I think the interesting part there was that the Brigadier General writes to Kara and Jacob about Spencer and mentions his unflinching resolve. Unflinching resolve is something that uh, Dutton is going to need in spades when they arrive back in Montana with the mess that has been created there. So I think that was a really interesting two-word phrase to describe Spencer, because I think that's probably the highest quality he needs going into that mo- into the mess in Paradise Valley. What hit me in that moment was I was like, I didn't even know that like people do write about you home from the war and like tell, tell your family what a great guy you are. So I want to think this is actually unique and not commonplace at all that anyone would be writing your family about how awesome you are. So I was like, okay, Spencer, you must really be standing out from the crowd. Like, I give you a lot of credit for that. I mean, think about the first time we meet him, right? He's having that flashback when he's on the train to... uh to Nairobi, I think it was, and he has broken his leg, right? He says, my leg is broken, his gun is at a bullet, and he ends up, like, hand-to-hand fighting in the in the muck with that German soldier and killing him. That's unflinching resolve. A lot of people have just been like, whatever, I'm done. But he didn't. He had a zest for life, and he wasn't ready to quit there. I think that's the kind of thing that shows that unflinching resolve. So I think that was really cool. That, you're right, I think not everyone gets a letter home from the Brigadier General. It struck me me. I mean, I've seen a lot of movies about war. It struck me. I don't I don't remember a lot of Brigadier Generals writing anything about any of my characters I watched. Right. I imagine I imagine somewhere Spencer probably has a chest full of uh, medals and awards the same way like Casey Dutton, uh, who is a war vet, had a plaque, if you recall, from season one. He's got a plaque of all the medals he earned uh, for his bravery. I make it that Spencer has a, has a similar cache of medals, not that he would ever wear them or think about them. In the same way, did you, did you bump on the part that he doesn't smoke rolled cigarettes anymore he has to roll his own because the army gave out rolled cigarettes and they're now kind of tainted in his mind yeah i think that that's fascinating and again just like way to layer things on just like quietly but like just develop these characters like so 360 you know you get like a full view of them uh, letter two talks about it was a funny story. This is the one they cut to. They're, they're kind of doing this montage style. If you don't recall the scene, they cut to they're still drinking these two, these two birds and they're laughing. She's reading a story about how Jack tried to saddle a cow, a milking cow, and was almost drowned in a trough by this cow. Spencer calls Jack a little tornado. They both talk about how there's madness on both sides of their family. And she says something along the lines of our children will be mad. We should consider adopting. Oh, I bumped on that so hard. <laughs> I was like, would it be Elizabeth and Jack's child by any chance? <laughs> I love it. I can hear your face. Like, it's like you had your face inside your shirt and you're like, Woo! <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I smell, I smell someone else's baby womb. <laughs> safe womb. A safe, safe womb. womb growing, passage. Grow, growing a womb for them to adopt. Uh-huh. I'm with you. Uh, letter three is that John and Emma had lost a baby. 
Uh, there's Emma was too old to try for another. Jack is uh, is their only son, but what a special son. Uh, very sad, but also fills in some backstory, some necessary, I mean, we already talked about it, but filled in necessary backstory about Emma and John and why Emma may feel like she's really at her rope's end here when you layer on this new tragedy of losing her husband. Letter four just randomly mentions that it was about the worst snowstorm they since 1883 which is just a callback to the show the very that the fact that the year the duttons arrive in paradise valley was the worst snowstorm in 40 years until this letter had been written it's so terrible a hundred head of cattle standing up frozen in the snow big the same way margaret dutton died margaret dutton essentially died like cattle <laughs> done dirty they done, done dirty. dirty they done to margaret dirty Margaret. Done Margaret dirty. Oh uh, letter five was maybe the sweetest one. It's Kara talking about how she's given up knitting altogether because her favorite hobby is watching Jack and Elizabeth fall in love. I was kind of laughing at that on the inside, like thinking like, is that for real? Does that really sound like Kara Dutton to you? I think she's taking a little hyperbole here. I think so too, because that I was like, for real. I remember like, she's writing a letter to a guy she had to her to her a favorite nephew that she hasn't seen in for however long. I guess she's just she's just being a sweetheart. But I thought that I thought that actually was a huge glimpse into Kara's heart. Like when things were not so dire, then she actually had the time to watch people fall in love and just enjoy that. You know, well, I think it's interesting. I, I like that you said that, because think about how we have seen John before he died and Jack deal with and interact with Jacob and Kara up to this point, not including Jack's insolence towards Kara in this episode, but prior to that, when he's like, uh, when he's futzing around in a ring and showboating and she kind of scolds him about getting hurt before his wedding and showing up with a broken arm, they are very sweet to Jack, uh, Jacob and Kara. They treat them like parents. They don't, they don't act like you're just my aunt. You're not my mother. They, they, there's no, there's no, you're not my father. You're not my mother from either Jack or john when it comes to kara and jacob so so it makes sense that then it would be reciprocated and that in in non-chaos or crisis moments kara would write about her own son or her own grandson from that same point of view because to her jack would be like a grandson if if spencer and john were her kids by adoption um, adoption um (laughs) then then jack is like her grandson so yeah it's a little sweetheart moment but then you have the sixth letter this was interesting this one hit me differently this is alex because spencer can't bring himself to read it he senses the tone from alexandra and he knows he can't read the letter himself. He makes her read it aloud. I'm going to play this for you, but then I want to play Kara's reading of the same letter from last week. They're different, even though the words are the same. They, I think it hits differently. So I want your take on it. I've listened to both of them side by side. I actually played them at the same time, which is actually kind of a cool effect for a little bit. But let's listen to Alex reading Kara's letter. This is the final letter that Kara had written. Spencer, your brother has been... By the time you receive this letter, I suppose your uncle has been killed as well. Your nephew has been wounded. This ranch and your legacy are in peril. War has descended upon this place and your Whatever war you fight within yourself must wait. 
You must come here. What's the date? The date? Of the letter. When was it written? Three months ago. And there's so much there. Her, her fear of reading these words, which she's already read the letter, so now she's reading it out loud, but she's already read this letter, and she's still terrified of every word that she's saying. And she's saying in a fear, and, and he's quivering. The, their breath you hear in that clip that's Spencer trying to keep his shit together, and he's only hearing bits and pieces of it as it comes out, and he's immediately gone to the worst places. I, I don't know. I don't know if this hit you her reading it, or especially if you were thinking about the way Kara wrote it um, the week before. I'm, I'm curious. Play me the other one. I want to hear the other one now. Okay. This is Kara writing that same letter we just heard Alex read. Spencer, your brother has been killed. By the time you receive this letter, I suppose your uncle has been killed as well. Your nephew has been wounded. This ranch and your legacy are in peril. War has descended upon this place and your family. Whatever war you fight within yourself must wait. You must come home and fight this one. She says it takes Kara 28 seconds to read that letter. There's no sentimentality to it. There's urgency, there is demand, there is information to be conveyed without sentiment or emotion. 28 seconds, she gets the words out. The Alex reading clip, including the what one was dated, it was dated three months ago, that's a minute and 12 seconds. The actual letter part takes her about 45, 50 seconds to read. Literally almost twice the amount of time to get out the words that Kara said with urgency in 28 seconds. Now, why does that matter? I think it matters because of how it, it is written, the intent with which it was written versus the intent with which it is received. And they're different. Kara is try Kara is trying to act with urgency. She's she's using urgent moments. She's just watched her husband maybe, you know, shot to death. Her oldest nephew is dead. Her grandnephew is shot. His fiance to be is shot urgency spencer you have to come home and fight this war alex is reading this from fear she's afraid spencer re hearing the words is afraid it takes twice as long to get out i think that's really emotional when you hear them especially side by side it feels a lot like the listener is you know our listeners and, and the audience members of the show we're really the alex and the spencer you know we're finding out information through these letters and there's something about it that it's it's grander it's like the larger story and the way that that these are prequels and we're going back and we're revealing information about the duttons and, and how they got there that's how the letter reading felt to me like there was these reveals and so those tend to be more dramatic and more you know like heart pounding when you're revealing something as opposed to the one who's like putting it on paper you know that person is the matter of fact fact person you know putting it all all out there and getting it to spencer and like you said it was so short and like concise but like we're dealing with the emotional you know receiving of that information and and really how life-changing it is to spencer and to alex though she doesn't exactly know that yet it's going to change the trajectory of their lives based on what she's reading out loud and i think she knows that on some level but spencer really knows that you know he knows what's going to have to happen now it would be a lot to take in you know after you've been on this island and everything's been so beautiful and you also have to have that moment of like i let that sit there for three months 
And like, who knows what my family has been going through. And I've been here having sex on the beach. There's got to be some guilt and regret and like anxiousness of like, oh my God, you know, like this has been going on for months. And and here I have, I, I could have known about it and I, I didn't. When he's talking about the letters and the reason he didn't read the letters, he's trying to explain to Alex why he wouldn't have read them. I, I understood all that, right? Did you get all that? I, I did. And he's talking, I mean, it, it plays on the danger of hope theme that we had in this episode. The, as soon as you start thinking about letters from home, you're essentially dead meat because you are distracted. Yeah, I was going to say you're not present, right? right. Like Your you eye have is to off stay the ball. In the moment, you have yeah. you have to deny you have to deny yourself that moment of heaven because in the in the long term or even the short term, it will lead to your death. It is essentially like asking for a bullet. It's the danger of hope. It's 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 danger of hope said a different way. Those letters pre- represent a glimmer of hope but that glimmer of hope will distract you and lead to you being killed in a war in a war setting but in the same way it's kind of like um schrodinger's cat if he never reads the letters does what happened in montana ever really happen as far as spencer you know is concerned Mm-hmm. It, right. Maybe he doesn't read them for three years and he goes right. home and Whitfield and Banner own the Dutton ranch. Or he never goes home at all. And in his mind, you know, the Duttons are are thriving and doing great and he can just leave them on a shelf in his brain and he can create whatever future for them that he wants. They're all happy and healthy and successful in Montana. That's all I need to think. And I don't want to read anything to the contrary to that. But you know, and I know, and anyone who's ever had to face traumatic things and try and start to heal knows you have to face it eventually you have to read the letter because until you face your demon you can't deal with your demon you can kick it down the curb all you want but eventually you're you're never going to be healed you're never going to be whole so if you're committed to that you've got to read this letter what about having to act on the letter because there's this portion of the reading of it and now and it's sort of like and now you know Mm -hmm. and then there's the portion of like how are you going to respond? Because there's lots of people who are willing to open that email or open that postcard or open that letter in the mail or or whatever, get that text and read it. But then what? You know, and what are you willing to do once you have the information? Yeah, I mean, I think a Dutton and the sense of honor and duty, a Dutton has to respond to that, right? I mean, I, I think, I, I don't think Spencer being the man we think we think he is, can hear that letter and not start packing up his shit and start thinking out about a way to get back to Montana. That's what we all expect. And that's that's 100% what we have been predicting. I wonder if there will be any moments of hesitation about, you know, like when you come back to this, what are you coming back to? And what are you, not only what are you walking away from, but what are you walking into? Well, maybe. And also we have to consider the Alexandrite of it all. Remember, we are having this conversation of with Elizabeth. Is it fair for Elizabeth to take a breath and say, hey, maybe I don't want to live in a war zone where I'm right. going to be shot for just riding in a wagon. And Alex has already had a harrowing event up in a tree. And remember, when they get into the car, she says, it's agreed. You were going to change your job and get a new job. <laughs> and we'll never. And he's like, honey, we were just taking a drive in a country. This wasn't even my job. Yeah. Can you can, when when you really like think about that? That part was kind of funny. Right. When he's like, that wasn't my job. <laughs> like, <laughs> I wasn't even battling anything on work time. Right. That, that was, was just, just a country drive. Leisurely right? just checking out a footprint in, in the lava. And, and 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 he can't hide this letter from Alex. He can't hide brother dead. A nephew wounded 
war has this war has descended on this home you need to set aside your own personal demons the demons that alex now knows he has you need to set those aside and come fight this actual war at home maybe alex doesn't want to rush into that maybe maybe that's a little too much adventure you know he promised her it would never be dull she thought he meant (laughs) ravaging on beaches around the world (laughs) right but maybe it means something else so it's going to be a test it's going to be a test of this new relationship and their commitment to to uh, chaos in, in all I'm curious forms. about how they decide the next step because we saw Jack and Elizabeth. Because you had a young couple make a split-second decision and say, nope, we're committed to the ranch, we're committed to this life, we're staying without a, without a second thought. We have a second young couple now with given equally you know like dire information and they have to decide and i'm curious if they're going to give us a beat to see how does this couple determine whether they're coming or going or whatever does the woman make the decision like elizabeth did or will they make it together or how will this flesh out and i think it will be interesting to compare them to elizabeth and jack and how they made their decisions Uh, I want to read you a quote going back to the German Spring Offensive real quick. Before the Americans began their march into the battle arena um, from their training ground when they first landed in France, uh, General of the Army at the time, John Pershing, uh, he spoke to the troops before they started to march. This is a part of his quote. He wrote, or he said, You are the finest soldiers in Europe today. Our people today are hanging upon your deeds. The future is hanging upon your action in this conflict. Now, I found that completely just I was looking up up into things about the spring, uh, the German spring offensive. But that quote seems pretty fucking clued into Cara Dutton and her letter and essentially what she's saying to Spencer and what she expects of Spencer. The our people hang in the balance based on what your actions are. General Pershing is saying through the timeline, you know, for Spencer to go home and do his duty, his duty at home. Anything less than him packing up his bags is he's going to lose face in front of Alex. Like, you know what I mean? Like he does. He can't actually make a decision completely on his own based on the information he knows he also has to think about how does this affect his relationship and how is this going to make him look to her which is huge at this juncture well right and he is this larger than life figure for her right i mean she thinks of him as the killer of man eaters right she she buys into the hype remember the the thing that attracted to him attracted her to him first was that he was this a famous famous american brutish hunter and so he's not going to start throwing shit in the bag and saying, I have to go home. Maybe she doesn't want that, but I think she That's fully expects, I think the draw though, the push and pull draw is that she fully expects him to do that. And maybe she is on board with it. Maybe she, maybe, maybe she's underplaying the threat of danger in her mind because it does seem half around the halfway around the world, which it is. So maybe she's initially not going to object to it, but I agree. I think her reaction of him is that he has to spring into action, that he is not someone to dither, that he will take out his gun, he will load his bullets, he will put on his gun belt, and he will go to war for his family. That's what we're all expecting, but I'm but I'm wondering if there'll be any bit of hesitation just to make it a little more a little more interesting, right? Before we wrap up here, I wanna I wanna just try this just to see how this plays. I did this before and it sounded kind of cool for a little bit. I'm gonna play the two letters kind of overlapping. Spencer, your brother has been your killed. By the time you receive this letter, I suppose your uncle has been killed as well. Your nephew has been wounded. This ranch and your legacy are in peril. War has descended upon this place and your family. 
Whatever war you fight within yourself must wait. You must come home and fight this one. And your legacy are in peril. War has descended upon this place and your family. Whatever war you fight within yourself must wait. You must come home. And that's a full 22 seconds longer than the Kara reading. I was looking at the timers next to each other. Well, I love that exercise because I think that that's how Spencer would have heard it in his head, right? Like he would have been hearing Alex's voice in real time, but but you would have naturally started to put your own aunt's voice in there because it's her letter to you, right? So some part of your brain is probably hearing her voice and hearing Alex's voice in real time. Well, I mean, so we saw that, right? Cool when they're exercise. reading when they're reading the German Spring Offensive, right? That exact thing happens. She starts the letter and then it it shifts into Kara's voice as he starts having a flashback to the actual German Spring Offensive and his time there it resolves out of Kara's voice back into Alex's voice to the end of it and where she signs it just Kara so I, I 100% agree with you I think I think that is the way it probably proceeds in his brain very cool very good TV making and very good podcast putting it together and very good podcast <laughs> very good podcasting just here <laughs> Let of me slap course. myself on the back. I need my hand, my back scratcher, so I can <laughs> I'm slap myself. I'm slapping you on the back from all the way over here. All right, so we're three months. <laughs> we're three months from when she wrote that letter. Now, which I thought they had did a great job handling the time jump. It could have been very clunky. It could have been very confusing. But at least now, at the end of this episode, we know we are three months ahead. Now we don't know what's taken place in Montana in these three months, but we know time jump wise, we're three months ahead at the end of episode four so now it's going to be at least you would imagine three months three to six months for him to actually get home assuming he goes right home that's a good question about how long the travel will take for a human passenger versus the letter and everything so a human passenger with a fiance in tow who has her own bags i'm assuming of some sort well she didn't have that much i guess that's true she just had the one suitcase she took with her she She was traveling she could drag herself uh, she spent her days mostly just in her lingerie so fact or nude or 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 nude as to see he spends it basically in uh, pants and no shirt and that's how he spends his days so they're actually very light on clothes i actually appreciate the way they travel <laughs> i'm strictly a carry-on guy i don't check bags i'm no? if, I, if i can't get in my duffel it doesn't come yeah you're always gonna put your nighty in there <laughs> No ninety for this guy. Oh my god! Okay, that was outrageous. <laughs> All right, Mike, it's time for this portion of our podcast where we make some predictions as we're moving forward, and we're at the halfway point, so it is absolutely time. This episode was a setup episode. We got a lot of things happening. That's like we're like in, like waiting with bated breath for that next little shoot to drop. It's definitely going to be Spencer and Alex, and like, are they making this trek home? How long is it going to take? How much are we going to see of it? Versus are they just going to pop up on the ranch? Like, are they going to be the car that they think is coming for Elizabeth? But really, it's not. It's really Spencer and Alex in the car. Could you see that move? They say, turn the car away, turn the car away. And it turns out to be Spencer and Alex, not the car coming to get Elizabeth. Right. Remember the Zane's Zane's instruction to the cowboy was, if it's not a friend coming up the road, shoot at him. <laughs> so hopefully they, hopefully they remember what Spencer looks like. So. No kidding. <laughs> Hopefully he knows the secret handshake from afar. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, you guys, every second of my, of my, uh, 
1923 brain. It's wanting Tiona to get out of Dodge Man and, and, and crossing my fingers that she gets out of there smoothly. And I think that Kira is going to have pulled off this ruse for the last three months. I think she's going to manage to have held them off for this long. I don't think that, that, that the game is up at all yet with the sheep herders. I think when we get into episode five, we're just, we're just starting with, I want to hope Spencer actually like almost close to home. What do you think? I agree. I don't think he's very far from home when we pick back up. Maybe not the beginning of episode five. Maybe it's the end of episode five is him walking in the gates or driving in the gates with Alex or whatever. I think Jacob is still alive. I am revising. I think Jacob survives a little bit longer than we originally said. Just based on how he was in this episode, it felt like the the race is not quite done on him yet. Uh, because if he just turns up dead, that's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Now that they've made him alive enough in this episode, they need to make him alive until something traumatic comes and does him in again. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It feels like it feels like when Spencer arrives, he can let go. Well, I mean, he says to Zane, right? He, you know, how long will it take Spencer to get home? It may take him a year to get home, sir. Then we've got to hold on for a year. But can you see that just as like, you know, a matter of, of like sort of nature of like of like he would hang on until his replacement? I've lived old people dying who held on to a specific moment occurred and then they then they were able to let go. And I think that's a very real thing. Absolutely the same. Yeah, and I and I think once Spencer gets there, all bets are off. I think murder spree. Yeah, murder spree. <laughs> maybe maybe praying like the animals he's hunted in Africa. Maybe just Rambo style. I, I don't know, but it's gonna there are gonna be a lot of bodies dropped by the, before the end of the season. Is my guess. Oh, I agree. I look forward to it. Me too. And hopefully, Father Renaud is one of them. Oof. I don't know how Spencer winds up in North Dakota to go kill those the psycho priest, the masochistic priest. I I think maybe Psycho Priest crosses the border coming towards looking for her. Oh, he better not do that. I hope he does and he gets whooped, man. Poor Jacob. Okay, Jacob. <laughs> this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1923 edition. This has been our coverage of the mid-season finale of season one of 1923. Uh, if you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could, especially at Apple Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star review and leave us a little note. If we like it, we'll read it on the air if you're nice to us. And you know what? It helps us promote the show. It helps other people find the show. It helps us all just, you know, ravage you. That's all we want to do. We just want to be ravaging. Yeah. No, we're not yeah. ravaging anyone. Yeah, we're ravaging all of y'all. Y'all ravage each other, okay? Y'all five-star <laughs> ravaging. That's all we're looking for. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.